from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. The creator of some of the most transcendent art of our time explores why it's necessary to go beyond the faded postmodernism of today's art world, how psychedelics can play a role in discovering and manifesting one's deeper realms of being, and how the, quote, two kinds of hire can impact artists in their work. Hey, buddy. Hey, Ken. How are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> Good. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing good. Good to hear your voice. Oh, I know. It's great to hear your voice, too. So, how's the family? Well, they're all good, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Allison's great, and Zena is great, and it's Allison's birthday tomorrow, so we're oh. kind of celebrating early, had a little dessert with the crew. Awesome. Yeah. Well, good. Well, there's a whole, there's so many things we could discuss. But we really want to kind of focus on, you know, you and your work and kind of every so many years we always check in with each other and kind of, you know, bring each other up to date on where we are and where our, you know, thoughts have progressed in terms of art and what it means, its relation to transcendence, to spirituality, to transformation itself. And it's a discussion that you and I have been having you know, almost uniquely for, well, since at least, you know, 1990s. Right, right. And so it's just always great to kind of check in and do this. So let's do it. All right. Can we do that? Yes. It's my favorite subject, and you're my favorite person as a male to discuss these things with. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, Allison's my uh, I understand. partner in crime here, but even the question of the transcendental in relationship to kind of modern and then postmodern art yep. had become almost like somebody farted in the room, you know, yeah, and I, I know. would bring up the question. And, you know, in the wake of a mystical experience, no matter how it comes on one yeah your kind of lens on reality has shifted and yeah. Yeah. so those questions which have been asked for thousands of years and lucidly as you pointed out by schopenhauer and sure. after nietzsche it kind of trails off yeah. and and you pointed me in the direction of the idealist philosophers and that was where i really got to pick up the scent of how the transcendent can be accessed and the different ways then that the artist can work with, I guess, the divine flow. Either In my case, mostly it's like I get a kind of blast, a vision of some kind, and then I work to try and translate that uh, and to recall the feeling and the various attributes of it as well as I can, you know, reducing a multi-dimensional experience into a two-dimensional surface mostly. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, but oddly enough, it does connect with people who've had similar experiences. Right. And and I feel it relates to the whole unfolding or evolving stream of sacred art. So then there's also, as you pointed out, the more like the Zen approach that gets the artist into that state before 
painting the mountain, one must become the mountain. Right. And, and then from that space, whatever gets transmitted right. potentially has the vibe embedded in it. Right, and we can talk about sort of the different kinds of art, and there's many different ways of classifying it, but one of the ways is what object domain, what phenomena does the art attempt to present or represent or evoke? And then another is what is the state of consciousness in either the artist and or the viewer that is presented or evoked by the art. And both of those are important. And we want to talk about both of those because one of the things that your art does, and this is why the trail of art got so terribly foggy after the idealists and why I said sort of you go back and pick up the story there don't stop there but pick it up there because that's where it's sort of the West became terribly muddied and what the function of art was all about and so into the postmodern condition of art which is just a mess it's just devolved into its hidden presuppositions which are nihilism and narcissism and so as you say that to bring up actual significance of art is like farting in the room I mean you know for many many years both artists and art critics would look at what you were doing or what I was writing and just go, well, that's just that's regressive or silly or stupid. But now that the postmodern project has fallen apart almost completely, I actually end up defending postmodernism now. <laughs> it's, it's a partial truth in it, because I'm trying to right. take the truth in both pre-modern, modern, and postmodern. And postmodern has come so unglued that people forget the important truth that it has contributed. But now it's like art can start to take on significance again. And so I would started one of the forewords for one of your books by saying Alex Gray might be the most significant artist alive. And a lot of people took that as, well, that's hyperbolic or it's allowed because he's writing a foreword, so he's saying something sort of overboard. But its significance, of course, has a, a technical definition for integral, and that's degree of depth, more, more depth, more significant. And then the more span, the more fundamental. So... By significance, it meant the depth of the reference of your art, what your art was referring to, which is at least subtle and sometimes causal and sometimes non-dual domains of reality. And that made it more significant than any contemporary artist, just because contemporary art wasn't dealing with crap, literally. It had no significance at all. It says of no depth. It was reduced to, as somebody said of Andy Warhol's work, which I love instantly, but somebody said of Warhol, now we know the speed of shallow. <laughs> and so there's just no, there's no depth. He was a perfect surface painter. And yeah. postmodernism is basically, can be summarized one take on it, is there is no depth. There's, there's just nothing but a play of surfaces, a play of signifiers. And so against all of that, your work stood out, saying, no, wait a minute. There's not only higher realities, and in that sense, you give what I've always referred to as a, you know, a subtle realm objectivist painting. You're not painting visions or, or symbols. You're painting realities. They can be seen if you do the proper injunction. And the injunction might be an entheogen. It might be meditation practice. It might be a peak experience. But much of the artwork that you're doing is not something that's just made up. It's something that is objectively real. In that sense, it has a referent in the upper right quadrant. It's a grosser, subtler, causal object. But then it also invites the person change of consciousness. And in that sense, it's transcendental or transformative art and helping the person reach either the level or the state of consciousness that the artist was in 
when he or she did the artwork. And so you and I have always been talking about this, and I think, frankly, the world has just started to catch up with us because <laughs> with postmodernism falling apart, now we're back to saying, wait a minute, maybe history can actually write about something called history. It's not just the writer of history's own prejudices and biases. Maybe there is something called history. Maybe there's something called art. And maybe there's something called an artwork and so on, and can't just reduce it away. So significance is starting to creep back into art. And, again, something you've known from the get-go, and something I've tried to give a kind of a philosophical orientation to. But I, I feel it's a very auspicious moment with the basically the beginning of the end of the postmodern avant-garde and the yeah. beginning of the integral avant-garde. Well, so I kind of that's kind of a rambling on and on about it. But just, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's perfectly logically and succinctly summarized. We've just come back though from the Armory show on one of the piers here, and so the art marketplace, oh dear, which is completely riddled with yeah. the postmodern yeah. surface agenda, yeah. and as well as most of the uh, museums that are displaying yeah. you know the latest and greatest <laughs> are still in the throes of this as you're saying kind of the dying of postmodern yeah. or the shallow is going to take a while yeah. and for something significant on the horizon to reemerge right. it will take some critical depth which is I think emerging too. So there are there are really wonderful signs in yeah. the art world too. Jerry Saltz is one of the he just won the Jewett Mather Art Critic Award and he's the art critic for the Village Voice. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think, eh, it's just kind of surface treatment, I suppose. But right. he's been badgering artists in a way to to ward depth and in a very wonderful way and so i'm grateful that folks like donald cuspit and a number of other art critics are out there and are making i think a difference to people who read about art care about art and And donald has been on your bandwagon for quite some time i mean he's really a far-sighted and quite balanced critic and one of the ones to sort of pick up you know what your work was doing you know for some time now and that's always been very encouraging it has been, and I'm. I always have been encouraging him to dig into the ocean of your work because he put himself through the psychoanalytic training yeah. in order to get a greater understanding of the impact of the artist's psyche on right. the art object, and right. to be able to bring that dimension of right. the unconscious into his criticism as right. well. Right. And I think that that's been powerful and helpful. Right. And once you're open to that, you realize there's not only the subconscious representation in art, there's a superconscious representation in art. <laughs> and, and, well, <laughs> <laughs> you can go rare. Think... Yeah, well, just rare as those are. What we're trying to argue for, again, is that there's a whole spectrum on just the art object side of the street. We use object, of course, to mean any phenomena, whether it's subjective or objective per se. But there's a whole spectrum of art objects, and that is basically there's a whole, you know, there's at least anywhere from, you know, seven to a dozen major levels of consciousness and the worldviews from those levels. So in that sense, there's such a thing as magic art and mythic art and formal art and pluralist perspectival art and 
integral art and transpersonal art and so on. And those are represent phenomena that can be seen from these various levels or structures of consciousness. And it's also art objects that inhabit various states of consciousness. And one of the things I want to talk about today is the relation of the two. But the various states are, there are many ways to look at them, but the traditional grouping into four or five major states that include you know, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, witnessing, and non-dual is a classic and still hard to much improve on. And we sometimes refer to those as gross states of consciousness, subtle states of consciousness, causal states of consciousness, and non-dual states. And there's objects that can be found in those various states as well, types of objects that can be found in those states. And so one way to classify art is what is the referent of the artwork? And if it's not something out there, then it can be something subjective. It can be even a surface is a surface of something. And so that's one way to classify art is what we have. Let's look at what it represents or resonates with or evokes. It doesn't have to be representational. It can be presentational. But if you have a whole spectrum of levels and states, then you have a, a much wider view of what art can be involved with. And then there's also art in terms of what level or state of consciousness is evoked when you view the art or when you create it. And that's one of the things we want to talk about as well. So I think one of the reasons that I'm sort of hot on this particular aspect of it is I've just more or less finished a huge rewrite of a book I did in 1984 with five other people who were all, at the time, sort of Harvard professors. And they, so it's kind of a, a bit of a breakthrough book called Transformations of Consciousness. And that dealt with about nine or ten major levels of consciousness and the pathologies that can occur and the types of treatments that can occur at these, across this whole spectrum of consciousness. And in redoing that, I added about 450 pages, if you can imagine. <laughs> but it's, I said, you know, I was going to write this short little forward to it, and it kind of got out of control. But it's really, I think it's one of the best things I've done, just because it really looks carefully at these levels or structures of consciousness, at about a dozen of them, and looks very carefully at these four or five major states of consciousness, and then looks at, indeed, the relationship between the two. And there are so many immediate repercussions for art and for the ongoing dialogue that you and I have had now for going on several decades. And I wanted to bring you up to date on that and get all your reflections on that as well. But anyway, so we were back to finishing up how, indeed, you go to any local you know, museum or art fair and you're going to find... You know, postmodern is still, you know, got a Rating. grip on the on, on mainstream. It's just starting to fray at the edges, and so we're kind of watching those edges. And there'll always be postmodern types of objects because a part of what postmodern is is it springs from the green or pluralistic level of consciousness. And just like we can recognize magic art in a Paleolithic cave or in the artwork of a two-year-old child or mythic art or formal art, there will always be a kind of a green postmodern art because there will always be people passing through that wave or stage. But it's no longer the leading edge anymore. The leading edge at the very, very advanced reaches is indeed moved into a more integral, a kind of a turquoise or centaur, vision logic level, not to mention states. But anyway, yeah, not to imply when we say that postmodernism is sort of 
on its last leg. I mean, it's still quite strong, and I expect will continue to dominate the universities until, frankly, this generation of teachers passes on. Yeah. And as we know, the knowledge quest proceeds funeral by funeral. Yeah. So, but in the meantime, there are people that have, you know, always looked to your work as being somebody who wasn't afraid to expose himself to non-ordinary states of consciousness, whether it was through drugs, whether it was through specifically entheogens, whether it's through meditation, whether it's through life experience itself, and then convey what not only these objects or phenomena that can be seen in these non-ordinary states, many of which are duly recognized as higher states, but also how that can help evoke those states in the sensitive viewer as well. And that's why people see your work, and it's usually a revelation for them. If they haven't seen it, it's one of my favorite things. It's watching people, let's say, if I show them the Sacred Mirrors series, and just watch them. They're often just temporarily transformed right in front of your eyes. They just light up, and it resonates with something so deep in them. And they also they all get it. I've never shown it to somebody who didn't get it, specifically referring to the Sacred Mirrors series. And that's one of the great things about it, because there you walk people through. This is what your gross anatomy looks like. This is what your subtle anatomy looks like, and this is what your causal anatomy looks like. Yeah. And it just so happens that because those are bodies, upper right quadrants kind of thing, you can represent them. Yeah, yeah. So there's Gray's anatomy in more than more more than one plane, is <laughs> right? In the multi-dimensional anatomy. Yeah, yeah. Well, the mapping. I think this is one of the great gifts that you brought into the world was by distinguishing all of these different levels of awareness, states of awareness, and really getting in there and describing why this state is not that state, differentiating these things. We really come to understand it better. And I feel like the quest of my work, at least, was to also distinguish some of these various layers and levels of awareness and how our identity is embedded in those different dimensions. And so the I, the sense of self, and the questions of what is awareness, what is consciousness, and finding the kind of gross to subtle to divine levels, differentiating that, putting a vertical in the whole question of the nature of self has been really validating for a number of people who have come. I I didn't know that this would really be the results of doing the work. I just, you know, kind of, it was really Allison's kind of inspiration, you know, to begin the sacred mirror series. She was the one that named them as well. Uh And, you know, it was in the wake of some performance. I had made some charts that were of the nervous system and one of the right. kind of simple, subtle anatomy to see a kind of yeah. Eastern and Western models of life energy and awareness. Right. And, you know, people were responding well to the charts. And so it was her suggestion to make a painting series kind of based on that whole thing. And that was really the turning point for me in terms of making a series that was devoted to mapping those different levels and then portraying some of the altered states, specifically the universal mind lattice. I think that was the kind of the LSD experience over which I never got, you know, (laughs) which kind of changed my perspective on 
things entirely by kind of melting down into the the infinite interconnected network of beings and things. And uh, so portraying that, then finding out from a number of people that, oh my God, I had that experience. And people would burst into tears and they'd travel far distances and things and they'd it, one or another of the works, I've found people that said at least that they had an experience practically exactly like that or that it, this reminded them of the experience that they right. had. So so the work was validating for them, but their validation of my work in a way that was kind of a confirmation that we're seeing the same right. levels. Right. And it's kind of like... Alfred Bierstadt went into the, I don't know, the Rockies and things when in early American art, hardly anybody had passed into the the great north and southwest and things. Yeah. And so he would go and paint the beautiful scenery and then bring it back to New York and display it to people and show them how beautiful those things were. It's kind of like being a Bierstadt of the right. inner realms because <laughs> you go in by whatever means necessary and right. and then come out with the best description that you can, at least in the kind of work that you know I've been doing for the last 20 years or so. And, and some have that experience that have never had the experience before, in other words, that they're aware of. So it's not just that people have had an experience and then your art reminds them of it. For some people who have never consciously had some of these experiences that they remember, your art evokes it, sometimes for the first time. And that's even more confirming in a certain sense. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so go ahead. You were... Well, I feel like that's the mission of art, yeah. that you're creating a mirror of the person's eternal or sort of beyond-time nature, if possible. Yeah. If possible, if you can just for allow people a glimpse into their most expanded sense of identity and self. Right. And as uh, Christopher Alexander in these wonderful books I'm reading talks about it as the eternal self. Yeah. And of course, I have problems with that terminology on it, but I know what he means. Yeah. It's yeah. like uh, he feels like the entire nexus of what art is trying to do is to provide a mirror for the eternal self. Yeah. And that we feel it practically physically in yeah. our bodies yeah. when we engage it. There are certain areas like Chart Cathedral or something. You walk in there and you're reminded of something. It it brings you home to yourself in a new way. That is completely unlike going to Costco. Yeah. Or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. And this is a fascinating architect, this guy, who would take around photographs to people. And uh, he has, like, a picture of a waterfall, say, and then a picture of a parking lot. Right. And he'll ask the question, which reminds you more of your eternal self? Right. And so... People, first of all, say, oh, it's an absurd question, you know, but then once they get past that, then they almost all of them respond to one thing over another. And he has a variety of photographs. So he's been testing people, and he's been testing this whole idea about relationship between self and object that calls up 
this, perhaps it reminds us of something we are only a dimly aware of or haven't realized, as the Dzogchen right. folks would put it. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm feeling that even though I've just been going on my own kind of uh, encouragement from you and from uh, other friends and things, that there really is a greater purpose to trying to make work right. that does this. And for folks that haven't seen Sacred Mirrors, it's striking because it really is a kind of a gross, subtle, causal Gray's Anatomy. And these are paintings that are more or less life-size. In other words, they're you know, about six feet tall. Yeah. And you stand in front of them, and you stand in front of each one, and there's just a whole series. What's the exact number? of? There's 21. 21. So you stand in front of... The first ones, which are your gross physical body, and you just will stand there until you just resonate and feel that you can say, yes, these are my muscles, these are my bones, these are my nerves, okay, this is my digestive system. And you stand there until you just sort of, in a sense, objectify it. You actually resonate with the painting to the point that it evokes that experience in yourself. And you say, yes, I can feel my bones, that's where my bones are, I got that. And then once you're done going through the major organ systems of the body, then it starts getting interesting because then you step into the series that represents several paintings that represent the intermediate or the subtle dimensions. And those, again, for people that haven't seen it, you can sort of think of it as a combination of acupuncture meridians drawn in very vivid colors as well as seven chakras, those kinds of things, and just sort of get a sense of the whole subtle energy flows and then you move on to a next one, which is increasingly you can't even see the physical body. There's just this vortex of swirling energy as it moves into sort of the highest of the subtle. And then you get into uh, evocation of, and this, of course, is the hard one because then you're trying to evoke the, the emptiness. Yeah. yeah, the emptiness. <laughs> the, but it's handled very well, and you sort of step into that. and. So what you've actually done, what you know, integral theory, of course, would maintain is that those types of objects are there. And they're, at this point in time, they are universal, not necessarily because they're pre-given or as platonic eternal archetypes or anything, but that in part because they've already evolved and that we can actually get that kind of evolutionary history encoded in our own structure. And then, of course, there are also certain things that have not yet evolved, and those are available as well. But we don't have to get into, you know, arguments right off the bat about what's eternal and what isn't. Because even if something has four quadrants, and so it's going to have a cultural influence and all of that, there's still the point that the human body universally has 208 physical bones, for example. Uh, Chinese don't have 17 bones, and Europeans have 42 bones and stuff like that. But it's not to say also that you do very different things with those, and different cultures some play baseball, some play basketball, some play hockey, and so on. So it's allowing all these differences. But we're saying here's a sort of a textbook of the basic deep structures, anatomy structures, and these different states. And here's the self, here's the aspects of it you can feel in these different states. And so those are universal, even though so many of the other aspects, and certainly the lower left quadrant and all of that, is not necessarily universal. So that's what's so interesting is that people do stand in front of them and they go, there's a recognition. And that's what's so amazing is you can go down these 21 photographs of yourself, so to speak, and be introduced into seeing these dimensions that either you had not seen before 
or you, as you say, dimly perceive them. Most people are plunged into these states 24 hours a day in waking, dreaming, and deep sleep states, but don't really haven't really had a chance to focus on them. And so this is really sort of a slideshow of a journey of self-discovery. And so I think that's why people react to those so positively. And well, it's very hard for people to sort of, you know, dismiss them when they're given their own experiences, though. It is fascinating. And there's a quality of joy that mm-hmm. comes when you see something that mirrors something deep in you. And right. I'm not talking about my work, but any artwork or right. when I read one of your books, there's a joyfulness yeah. that accompanies this mirroring process. Right. When your transcendent nature is validated yeah. and reinforced in a sense and given new means of access with the tools. I've always felt like the sacred mirrors were a tool right. for right. for orienting oneself as deeply as possible. Right. And we've used them, you know, since creating them. It's been, a, you know, I finished the last one in 89, so it's yeah. been quite a, a while. But yeah. Allison and I continue to go over and use them in the chapel that they're set up in now, which has turned out to be a nice little space here in right. New York. Right. When was that set up? When was that space created? Well, Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, we opened the physical plant here in um, the autumnal uh, equinox, I guess, um, back in uh, 04. So it's about two and a half years. That we've and that was the West 27th Street? Mm-hmm. Wait, mm-hmm. Yeah, but do you remember what year it was that I came over to your loft in uh, Boston? I believe it was either... It's 82? 80, 80. I think it was 81, Yeah, maybe, 81. Yeah. yeah. And how many had you done at that time, do you recall? Well, I think I was just beginning the skins. Uh, the skins, and, yeah. But I may have done the Void Clear Light, and I probably had done Universal Mind Lattice because that wound up on a revision. Yeah, uh, that mind lattice is still, I mean, every period in an artist's lifetime has, you know, sort of peaks. It's really hard to compare one period to another. I look at books of my own, for example, like Up From Eden, and I, I'm still really, if I'm allowed to be, I'm kind of blown away by it, even though it's just the lower left quadrant. And the oh. universal mind lattice, is, you've got to just still be blown away by that work of art. I keep coming back to it. And I carry very long there when I talk to people about the series because it's it's probably the one piece that all the other more physical and gross dimensions were there in order to sort of seduce the viewer into, you know, feeling at home with the work and like, well, you know, these are more or less truthful. I can can buy this. But then it's uh, meant to take one directly into that right. kind of unconventional experience that, I don't know, it was a new perspective for us. It changed both of our works. Allison's work changed in the yeah. wake of it. My work did. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You know, it was an experience we had in 76. And, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. So it took a few years to get it into the painting didn't happen until 81. Yeah. But it takes a while sometimes for those things to gel. And by the way, Up From Eden did completely blow my mind, and it still does. Absolutely. Well, God bless you. Um, but that did indeed make it onto the cover of Revision. And Jack Crittenden and I had founded Revision Journal really just a year or two earlier. And I had actually come to Boston for a year to carry the work of that journal forward. And we were just so, everybody, as soon as they saw your work, was so taken with it. And I just love the whole atmosphere of it, though, because you and Allison were really living a transformative art life. And I frankly know very, very few artists. Well, first of all, I know very few artists are doing actual transcendental transformative art. And I don't even think visionary art's necessarily transformative. Sometimes it's just no. primary process stuff, and yeah, which is fine. I mean, I love it, but I'm using transformative and transcendental in a specific sense that maybe we can come back to because you and I have talked about that a lot. But in the sense that, as I summarize sort of the point of one of our conversations as bad art copies, good art creates, great art transcends. Mm-hmm. And y'all were living that lifestyle. You also have these just outrageous live art public performances and performance art. And this is before it really just performance art really got, you know, degraded and turned into narcissistic just twaddle in too many cases. And some of them are just absolutely striking. And that's got to be a period of your own development as an artist that has some very fond memories for you. Yeah, you know, when I started out doing the performance works, I guess I had a sense of other artists that were doing transgressive performance works and like the Viennese actionists and the early body artists, Vito Acconci and Chris Burden and folks like that. They were inspirational to me. You know, I was just past being a teenager, so the uh, existential kind of angst-ridden message in their works I think resonated deeply with me. And so most of my early stuff had to do a lot with mortality. Right. So, yeah, that was a a really important kind of beginning for me. But I didn't realize how connected it was with the whole shamanic thing. And And I had definitely not gotten into the spiritual worlds at the time I was beginning the... uh, the performance works and the performance works then I guess snagged Allison because I was doing very bizarre things <laughs> shaved half of my hair for yep. half a year and yep. that was related to the brain though and in that way <laughs> well it, the intuitive and the rational yeah yeah of course um, Absolutely. the Ornstein stuff was kind of inspirational but it was more or less based on a dream and so I guess questions of consciousness and the brain and and things like that were part of them, but they manifested in various kind of bizarre and edgy activities. uh, But it was also a way to, although I was linking with a a certain kind of transgressive performance art body of work, I guess, in the late 60s and early 70s and things, it was also a way for me to establish a sense of independence from a mainstream art world, I guess, by doing bizarre things. I guess I was operating out that my parents were, you know, certain I had gone crazy. And (laughs) and, uh, 
<laughs> I, yes, they, in, a, in a way, they were right. That is really true. And I would have been worried if I were them. You know? Yeah. But oh, yeah. thank God, thank God I found Allison and then yeah. later your works and things. And all of this was really centering. And, yeah. uh, and it really changed the day that I took LSD because yeah. it happened to be the first time that I really met Allison as well. So right. Right. it was my first mystical experience. And somehow the embodiment of divine love in the form of Allison had, right. had miraculously come upon at the same time. And this right. was all in the wake of a kind of, oh, if there is a God, you yep. appear now because <laughs> I really need you. <laughs> and so it was, it was, for me, it was really miraculous. And yeah. I'll never, you know, forget that. I mean, you've had to deal with, the. I mean, early on, at least a sense of establishing your own independent way of viewing things, criticizing things, right. not caring what people thought, yeah. but being willing to speak the truth as you saw it. I think you have to. And I mean, I, I chose to wash dishes for 10 years, literally instead of go through the university system. So I, you know, went to do first as a on the medical program and then switched over to biochemistry and did my graduate work in biochemistry and then just left immediately and never went back to it in order to write, you know, my first book Spectrum Consciousness and I was 23 and in order to support myself I washed dishes as you well know and I literally did that for about 10 years. And it was a better fate doing that than it was being ground up in the university system. And I happen to admire universities. I think it's all that's fine, but not if you're trying to do leading-edge anything. And so what was starting to happen, while you were starting to do you know, transgressive work as a way to gain liberation from the art world, the thing that saved you, in addition to things like getting grounded and finding Allison and so on, was that that was part of your own opening to a positive view of art, whereas the rest of the art world, right shortly after and sometimes along with you, was also starting to transgress and deconstruct. It did nothing but that. Exactly. Until it yeah. tore everything down, including its own self, and is now just lying in its own waste products, rather literally if you're an artist, yeah. and calling that art. And that's not, it's just shit. Yeah. And when, you know, after you've seen it on the canvas once or twice, that's fine, but how many dead cows or dead cows in urine, or crucifix in urine, or crucifix in dead cows. We got it. We transgressed it. We deconstructed it. But you fortunately also turned left and started to reconstruct through your transcendental experiences. And yeah. do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, that seems like what's been happening in the overall art world. Yeah. But part of that is, look, if one hasn't had some kind of mystical experience, it would be a lie and, you know, even a worse kind of thing to make art about something that you hadn't experienced. Right. And so the kinds of things that many of the artists, if they're engaging with their feelings at all, and like you're saying, lying around in piles of shit, and I've been there, did that, uh, <laughs> but, but, but the, uh, you know, I mean, they're mirroring a kind of moral decay that is, I think most of us could recognize as part of the, you know, self-consuming society. And the decadence that they're mirroring 
is a true thing. Right. It's just that they're not pointing beyond it. Yeah. They can't actually know. almost caricature it and embody it yeah. in a weird way. I mean, they, they criticize the superficiality of mainstream culture by actually embodying something even more superficial. Hard yeah. to believe, but they managed to do it. Yeah. And that's where, you know, we learned so soon, those of us who had eyes to see what was going on, that deconstruction is fine if it's a prelude to reconstruction. Yeah. And psychoanalysis is fine if it's a prelude to psychosynthesis. But if not, all you've got is fragmented crap. And yeah. that's where we just really lost it. And that's unfortunate because that wasn't even healthy pluralism or healthy green. That was you might call the mean green meme or unhealthy pluralism or pathological pluralism. And yeah. that, you know, I don't expect green art to go beyond green, but I do expect to be healthy green and not dysfunctional or pathological green, pathological pluralism. And unfortunately, that's the road it took. And that's really betraying art in one of its functions, which is it's always been a great social critic. And certainly by the time that cultures are becoming, producing self-reflexive individuals, as I say, as soon as they've reached formal operational or orange or capacity for rational self-reflection, then art went from being merely a way to broadcast a mythic embeddedness to a way to criticize it as well. But if you don't also have something constructive, then it fails its overall larger purpose. Right. You know, and you, yes. you, you you righted yourself on that. I mean, you got out of that rut for whatever combination of luck and your own, you know, karma or whatever you want to call it. But there are very, very, very few artists that got out of that and were saved from their own deconstructive fury. Yes, it's a strange thing. But I think that it's directly because of the kind of inaccessibility of the mystic state if one doesn't focus on it. Yeah, and do the work. And if you don't have a referent for it, then you're not going to get transcendental art. Yeah, it's true. And and so if enough people can, or enough artists can, you know, accept that there is a spectrum of consciousness and that there are states that are healthy and integral and beyond the... Right. Uh, self-deconstructed kind of nihilistic states that are frequent in today's art. And many of these states are just, you know, as you were saying, putting spotlights onto diseased areas of our consciousness, racism or a kind of, I don't know, Dionysic frenzy of... (laughs) I suppose one of the great examples of that would be Paul McCarthy who had a recent installation there at the uh, Armory Show. And uh, his works involve smearing chocolate on on your naked self and tying hot dogs onto your own wiener and, and, uh, you know, peeing on people and, you know, dressing up as bad Santa or pirates or, you know, various kind of really childish. uh, It's Freudian. It becomes childish. Pathetically yeah. Freudian. It's just oh, completely fecal stages, yeah. and yeah. Uh, uh, it's really a kind of a mess. But it, yeah. he really tremendously embodies that kind of pathology of yeah. of, uh, yeah. of the state today, and he's one of the most celebrated artists. Uh, Wonderful, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, and in that way, I think Warhol was also mirroring the society that he yeah. was a part of. And right. it was an, definitely an important function. But there we come to the two functions of art. You know, the one that provides a mirror that may be uh, uncomfortable to look at it at first, you know, but nevertheless reflects a certain level of truth in society. And then the the art that points us toward what could be and what we potentially are, right. which is what I think the, the power in all sacred art has been. You know, right. The portrait of the Buddha or the icon of Christ right. are pointing to those higher dimensions in our own self and provide that kind of, like Christopher Alexander was saying, and we don't like the word eternal, but yeah. the infinite and transcendental nature. You right. Know? right. Well, here's something I want to get some of your reflections on, because one of the things that I've found really fascinating that I've come back to time and time again is the relation between structures of consciousness and states of consciousness. And structures are just a broad term for any really level or stable pattern in consciousness. And so whether we're looking at even the seven chakras can be looked at as levels in that sense. And the traditions themselves, certainly Vedanta and Vajrayana, are fully aware of the differences between structures of consciousness and states of consciousness and bodies. And so Vedanta, for example, maintains that there are three major bodies, and those are, of course, gross body, subtle body, and causal body, and that those bodies support three major states of consciousness, which are waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. And so we sometimes refer to those states of consciousness as gross, subtle, and causal as well, although technically it refers just to the body or the matter energy. But separate from both the states of consciousness and the bodies that support them are she's of consciousness. And the she's are also, again, similar to chakras. Those are much more like what the West would call structures of consciousness. And so the she's, in the simplest version in Vedanta, there are five she's. And the lowest is, they go from Anamaya Kosha to Pranamaya Kosha to Manamaya Kosha to Vijnanamaya Kosha to Anandamaya Kosha. And those sheaths are, the first one is the sheath made of food or matter, and the second is the sheath made of prana or bioenergy and alan vital, emotional sexual energy. And then the third sheath, the Manamaya Kosha, is the sheath made of mind or the mental levels. And Vijnanamaya Kosha is a sheath made of higher mind. And then Anandamaya Kosha is the sheath made of bliss or the transpersonal in general. And then those are sheaths covering, as the states and bodies also cover, Turiya or the self, the timeless and spaceless self. And that's a very good simple model because it does point to the fact that there's a difference between, let's say, the sheaths or the chakras and the states. And this is even, if you look at the, using the chakra system as an example, where in Vedanta and the general tradition associated with it, they usually recognize seven chakras. The Tibetan tends to recognize five. And the five are quite similar to the five shis. But even in both of those systems, the seven chakras, for example, and this is where it starts to get really interesting. The seven chakras are the seven structures, the seven levels of consciousness. Each of them have the major states associated with them. 
So you can experience the gross subtler causal state at any structure. So this is represented in the chakra system, of course, by the fact that Ida and Pingala and the central channel are the three channels that are present at all seven levels. So mm-hmm. there's a gross, subtle, and causal non-dual, the central channel. So you can be at, for example, the first chakra and experience that in a waking state, from a dream state, and from a deep sleep, formless, or non-dual state. And the same way if you're at the second chakra, or the third chakra, or the fourth, or the fifth, all of them have these three main states. Now, this becomes very interesting in sort of the basis, one version of which we call the Wilbur Combs lattice, which just says you can sort of, if you put structures up along one side, such as the seven chakras, or it can be in the Western versions, they give a little more granularity in some of the middle structures. So it can be Jane Lovinger's structures or Gepser's structures or Claire Graves or Abe Maslow, any of those. You put those up column on the left, and then across the top you put gross, subtle, causal, non-dual states. And then if you have these, let's say, seven levels, that gives you 21 combinations, 21 basic types of experiences that you can have. And the point about this, it becomes really interesting because you can, again, have a gross, subtle, causal, or non-dual state experience, whether you're at magic or mythic or rational or pluralistic or integral or superintegral. And that's where it becomes interesting. It kind of determines the way you interpret it uh, does. those experiences as well. It does. So somebody, for example, can be at a red or magic altitude vertical level which is around chakra two to three and still go through the sacred mirrors and have an experience because the sacred mirrors are essentially representing these broad states these gross subtle causal and non-dual states but they'll interpret them differently and that's what's so interesting so you can interpret them you know mythic interpretation a rational interpretation a pluralistic interpretation integral interpretation uh overmind interpretation a supermind interpretation And one of the reasons that becomes so interesting is then it allows us to understand why you can have, for example, shamanic states. And these states, again, can usually, they're often subtle, but they can be gross subtle or occasionally causal. But you can have these states at virtually any of these vertical levels or structures. And this is important because for a long time, I and virtually the entire transpersonal field, the only way we knew how to put these states and structures together was when we looked at the Western version of structures, they started to run out somewhere around the centaur, which if we're using the seven chakras is somewhere around chakra five or so. And certainly on any scale of, let's say, ten major levels, it runs out around level six or seven. And the Western models ran out around those vertical levels, not because Western psychologists were against these higher levels, but because so few people experience them in a permanent way. We have less than, right now it's estimated that less than 0.5% of the population is at turquoise or centauric or vision logic, whereas about 25% of the population is at green. And then even less are at these higher, you know, indigo or violet or ultraviolet, higher chakras, higher levels. So the Western models started to run out around Centaur, and we took these states and stacked them on top. So we, we'd often say it goes from Centaur to Psychic to Subtle to Cosmic to Non-Dual levels. 
And that's not quite right because you can have subtle and causal experiences at any of those structures, at any of those levels. So we knew something wasn't quite right from the beginning, and the question was how to sort of tease them apart because it also turns out there are three or four higher levels above centaur. And now Orbindo called them, the centaur he called the higher mind, and then above that was what he called the illumined mind, the intuitive mind, the overmind, and the supermind. Those are different from the states, gross, subtle, causal, and non-dual states. So we had to peel those states off and realize that you can have a state experience at virtually any structure or major stage that you're at. And that's what we call the Wilbercombs lattice. So that becomes interesting because, as you know, part of the problem is that there are people that can use shamanic experiences, but if they're at moral stage two or three, they'll interpret it that way or even reinforce their worldview at those levels. And the same with drugs, same with meditation. And it's really helped us kind of tease this apart. And I wanted to return to it now because it also gives us a handle to really look at what art does because this sort of Wilbur Combs lattice also gives us a way, again, of indexing where various types of art is coming from, mm-hmm. as well as the impact it's going to have on individuals who are themselves at different structures or states of consciousness. So if that wasn't a whole, you know, sort of a whole little miniature uh, lecture there, but I want to sort of get all of that on the table, because that's where it becomes really, really interesting. Right, because the artist can be at any of those levels. Right. And the whole point of becoming a more integrally aware artist is then being able to download the entire spectrum as much as possible into the work so that you're then giving back to the viewer more of a complete picture of who they are. Right. in the work and right. and that I think is the point certainly of making sacred art is right. going to give right. people that the verticality that is missing in so much of the work today and I right. I love how the Wilbur Combs kind of lattice helps us to see well there are there are artists that maybe you would call them spiritual artists but their work has more to do with the perhaps the landscape even right. the kind of the romantic right. as far David Friedrich and some right. of the Hudson River School and right. folks like that. It was at a time when the traditional symbols, and, uh, and for these artists it was probably mostly Christian, those kinds of things had kind of broken down. They were no longer obligated to the church to make artwork referencing the mythologies of Christianity, but right. they got a very deeply and profoundly divine kind of experience through their experience of nature. And so they, very differently than the Zen artist or the Tao artist, but in some ways related to them, they they were realists, but they were numerous of them were really trying to bring that sort of element of the transcendental into their work. And these we could call nature mystics, and it was very very much along with that kind of uh, level of awareness that you were describing. Right. Well, Um, yeah, I mean, continue, because it hits on the point I want to talk about, which is that mm -hmm. introducing both higher structures and non-ordinary states gives us two types of depth that art can explore. And that's where it gets really interesting, because we get a 
finer indexing, finer granularity of what some of these artists are doing. And I'll come back to that in a minute, but I, would, I didn't want to, you were starting to say something, I didn't want to... Oh, well, it was just that I felt like the lattice kind of allows us to see in the realm of the transcendental, there are various gradients. And, of course, you can see certain artists, that was their thing. That was the way that they viewed things. And then you can practically put different artists at these different levels, kind of fill them in like checkers or something in the grid. Uh, Yeah. And because their visions so often allude to those states, I guess. Now, I'm a little confused myself. The whole state and structure kind of element, there's the structure is like the chakras. The state is like the those four levels that we were mentioning, the gross and the subtle and the causal and non-dual. Right. And so... Then the from any one of those states, and there's gradients in between those, obviously, I suppose, then an artist's perception, they could have an experience. I mean, the whole thing with seeing angels or something is like that. How do we interpret that? What is that? You know, and what level of awareness would the person be at? And would it be different? I I think it would be. I think it would almost appear differently. Yeah, and what we're dealing with here is when we look at these vertical structures or levels, I'll just give a few more ways that they differ from states because this is also kind of helpful for us to get a handle on it. But structures, and I use sort of structures and levels and even chakras somewhat synonymously. And these are working, like I say, the West is given... For the middle chakras, certainly, the West has given a much more detailed view of what some of these vertical structures and these vertical stages are like. Because if you look at, let's say we mentioned those five sheaths, for example, and if you look at the monomaya kosha, which is the, the number three sheath out of five, mm-hmm. virtually all of the levels in spiral dynamics, for example, certainly all the first tier levels, fit right into the monomaya kosha. How is that? Well, because what you're looking at with, to use the spiral dynamics colors and the levels, the first sheath, which is the anamaya kosher, the sheath made of food, is basically the instinctual or, or the beige level. Okay. And then the next sheath, which is the pranamaya kosher, which is the emotional, sexual, and it's very similar to the second chakra, as the first sheath is similar to the first chakra. In spiral dynamics, that is roughly the beginning of purple. And then when you get to red, that's the beginning of mental levels. And from red to blue to orange to green, those are not higher mind. Those are all first-tier mental levels. All of those fit into the monomaya kosha. I see. See? And so what happens if you're using just the traditions that you shees or chakras is it's not that those aspects are wrong. It's that they don't give enough granularity for us to tease apart some of these huge differences between orange and green, for example, between the modern and the postmodern. So that's one of the reasons we want to draw on the Western structures and stages that deal mostly with these vertical levels. And so that's why we have to be very careful to sort of work those in, and it gives us a much, much finer handle on what's actually going on. But what happens then is that you can, again, if you're at, let's say, red, which is in the Western psychological developmental tradition, 
Red is still egocentric. It's the third chakra. It's power-driven. You can nonetheless, if you have an experience, a subtle-level experience of being bathed in white light, and you're at red or even the next higher level blue, you're going to interpret that according to the tradition. You might interpret it as being touched by Jesus Christ if you're a Westerner. And if you're red, you might likely interpret it that I am Jesus, and I alone am Jesus. I'm the only one that has that kind of realization or understanding. Whereas if you're at orange, you'll have that experience as it's world-centric, that basically all beings have this capacity, and if you're green, you'll really hyper-emphasize it. It's just I had this experience of this higher light, and it's equally present in all human beings and all beings around the planet. And we can't marginalize anybody or exclude them and so on. So the same subtle state experience will be interpreted depending on which stage you're at, which structure you're at. And one of the other differences is that mostly these structures do unfold in stages. And these are the things that make most of the stage conceptions in the West, whether it's Jane Lovinger or Arietti or Claire Grays or Abe Maslow, any of these, the great developmentalists, were working with structures of consciousness. And structures do, as I said, tend to unfold in stages. The classic structure stage sequence is atoms to molecules to cells to organisms. You can't skip stages. You can't have a peak experience. Somebody at moral stage one does not have a peak experience of moral stage five. These vertical structures unfold, they sort of transcend and include, transcend and include, transcend and include. Just so, again, cells transcend and include molecules, which transcend and include atoms. You don't go from atoms to cells and skip molecules. States, on the other hand, are exclusionary. You can't be drunk and sober at the same time. You cannot be in dream state and deep sleep, formless state at the same time. You can't be high and straight at the same time, etc. And what happens in development is these exclusionary states become inclusionary. They transcend and include. And I think that's one of the important aspects of development is that these structures are inclusionary. They transcend and include their predecessors. And that's what makes them so important. So what we're looking at then is you can then take any artwork and sort of look exactly at where, in what terms of state is it oriented. Is it oriented towards a gross realm and ways to experience that going from an almost dreamy immersion in it, even though it's still the waking state, to this nature mysticism that you're talking about, still oriented towards what would be perceived as a gross realm. But here you can have a very, very profound peak experience. And that, we were saying, gives us two different types of depth that art can represent. So one is, you can be at, let's say, just for sake of argument, you're at orange, which is formal operational, egoic rational, in Lovinger's, it's conscientious, and so on. And you can have a peak experience then, which will get you in a different state. So you can be at orange, waking state, you can have a peak experience in the subtle, which might indeed involve you know, beings of light, or luminosity, or things that somebody might interpret as angels, somebody else might interpret quite differently depending on the actual stage they're at. Mm -hmm. So you can have that kind of change of state, and that can be evoked by art, it can be evoked by meditation, it can be evoked by drugs, but that will sort of puncture the superficiality of your normal state 
by giving you these peak experiences in the subtle, causal, or non-dual states. But then there's also working with a higher level, because you might have these peak experiences and still stay at orange. But if you continue to have peak experiences, if you continue to grow, then orange is going to give way to green, which is going to give way to turquoise, which is going to give way to indigo, and so on, in terms of this vertical development. And that's why art can contribute to all of those. But most immediately, of course, it gives people a change of state. It gives them a state experience. And the last thing I wanted to say about that, and let me sort of knock it around, is states don't usually unfold in stages. You have just a peak experience here and a state there and a peak experience over here, and they don't follow any necessary order, more or less. Structures almost always unfold in a sequential stage. And in part, that's because that's the way it's unfolded in evolutionary history. And so it's just like atoms, molecules, cells, organisms. That's the developmental order, and that's not determined by some platonic given or anything. It's just that's the way it happened. I mean, it's the universe settled into those cosmic habits and those cosmic memories, and that's just the way it is for us right now. So that's why I often use structure and stage synonymously, but we have to be careful about that because states can occur in stages. And the place that mostly that happens is if you train states of consciousness, then they unfold in stages. And the classic unfolding there is it does indeed unfold from gross to subtle to causal to non-dual states. And that's what happens if you look at the work of, let's say, Daniel P. Brown, who you know, did that extraordinary work on the stages of meditation by looking at 14 root texts of the Mahamudra tradition and comparing it with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and comparing that with Chinese stuff and eventually comparing it with some Christian meditative manuals as well. And what happens is that the states of meditation tend to unfold in this general sequence of gross to subtle to causal to non-dual. And you can have peak experiences in these states. So you can be at a gross waking state and have a causal peak experience. Whereas you cannot be at moral stage one and have a moral stage five peak experience. That just, we just find no evidence of that. So that's another thing that helps us distinguish these. States are exclusionary. Structures are inclusionary. And states unfold in stages when you train them. And otherwise, they're kind of random. So we do refer to state stages and structure stages. And sometimes we use states and structures a little bit synonymously because structures almost always unfold in stages. But it's not always, and so we have to be a little bit careful, and I prefer to use the term structures of consciousness and states of consciousness. And then if structures unfold, then there are structure stages, and if the states unfold, then there are state stages. But these are very different sequence now, very different phenomena. And we're not pigeonholing people. It actually gives us a lot of freedom in understanding what's happening, because most meditative training, as I said, is a training in states going from gross to subtle to causal to non-dual. And yet you can still remain. You can go through that state training and still be at blue or still be at orange or still be at green. And this really gelled for me when I was talking with Genpo Roshi, who, as you know, is the head of the White Plum lineage, which is the largest Zen lineage outside of Japan. And I said, you know, you've studied with all these great Zen masters. And he was just learning some of the vertical stages with Jane Lovinger and Spiral Dynamics and so on. And I said, given the fact that they, let's assume they were relatively enlightened, they'd gone through all these gross, subtle, causal, non-dual states, what level were they at? What's the average stage? And he thought for a while, and he said, all of them were blue. 
And uh, that's been my experience. So that's very telling, because it does show us the relative independence, not total, but relative independence of these states of consciousness from these structures of consciousness. And so again, just to sort of repeat something I was saying earlier, which might make more sense now, that's why even in the traditional understanding, these she's of consciousness are different from the states of consciousness. And these she's or structures or chakras, you can be again at any of the major seven chakras and have any of these major state experiences, which is represented by you know the three main states of gross, subtle, and central channels at each of the seven chakras. Now all of a sudden, a whole lot of stuff started to make sense that didn't make sense before. Because there are higher vertical structures or structure stages or levels, higher than reason, higher than rationality, and that is indeed vision, logic, or higher mind, and the illumined mind, the intuitive mind, the overmind, and the supermind. And that gives us about anywhere from 10 to 12 vertical levels or chakras or she's or structures, those kinds of things. Those are inclusive. They transcend and include. And they unfold in stages. And then at any of those, at virtually any of those, you can have a gross, subtle, causal, non-dual peak experience. And everybody goes through waking, dream, and deep sleep every 24 hours anyway. Whether you're at beige or purple or red or blue or orange, you go through those main states every 24 hours. Now, this is where it gets so interesting. Because now we can go back and say, okay, wait a minute. It's not just shamanic art. Because some shamanic art stems from red, even though it's of subtle and causal states. It's from a red level. and It's interpreted as red. And it looks like red, and it smells like red, and it is red. And other people doing shamanic art, there are a lot of people in this country that do shamanic art that are green. But visionary art comes mostly from a subtle state. And all of a sudden now we get a great deal of things that were not making sense before. It never made sense, for example, that if subtle and causal were these higher levels, you don't have to pass through all the lower levels to have a causal or non-dual experience. People have those, you know, all the way back to red and blue, amber, orange, and so on. And yet those do unfold in stages. So this gave us a way to sort of put all of the stuff on the map. But it really does necessitate then us going back, and it's the last thing I will say on this, and then we can sort of go back into any of the details, of saying, okay, what is art doing? Now, again, let's say I'm at orange. There's at least three kinds of change, if you will, of transcendence or transformation, and we can talk about those exact meanings in a minute, but one is I'm at orange. I can, in a sense, going horizontally. I can just cut right and go from orange waking into subtle state experiences or peak experiences or causal peak experience or non-dual peak experience, and then that gives me a sense of transcendence or expansion. It can be visionary if I'm at orange and temporarily get plunged into this subtle state of visionary artistic experience. And when I come out of it, I'm still orange, but I've grown a little bit. I've had a micro-transformative experience that I'll start to let go of orange a little bit. And there's then two different things that can happen. I can keep training that state in meditative, contemplative training, for example. And I can even be a Zen master and still be largely at orange because I can go through the state training. And we have a lot of of examples of that actually happening. 
so, so it, it's kind of like you're at orange, right? And you're waking, right? And you're meditating, and you puncture into the subtle, maybe right. even causal glimpse. That's right. That's right. And so that's all accessible in the right frame of mind, given the right practices right. and things. And perhaps your interpretation of it will be, you know, conditioned by your orangeness, I guess. Right. But this is really fascinating because, say, for an artist, they're going to experience perhaps these other dimensions, right. uh, the subtle, for instance, right. and then bring it back into their artwork That's right. from that level. Now, it's subtly transformative, you say, because just widening or expanding their consciousness right. will eventually prepare them for elevation? That's right, because there are two ways that you can go. One, as I said, you can have this temporary transcendence, which can happen through a peak experience or through meditation or through art or through drugs. And then you can, if you continue to train that state, then you can turn it into a more or less permanent plateau experience. In other words, you almost permanently have access to that state. And if that means that you've trained from gross into subtle, you puncture into subtle, as you say, and then even into causal, then you're already, when you're in causal, you've learned to transcend the entire manifest world. So you're free of that world. Even though when you come out of it, if you're at orange, you're frontal structure is still going to be what it is and your manifest self is still what it is and if it's orange it's orange and so you'll come out of that and interpret that even though you're free of the world to the extent you talk about it and you experience it then you'll interpret it in orange terms now the vertical transformation is every time you're plunged into one of these non-ordinary states it sort of shakes loose your identification with orange and that indeed does make it easier First of all, you can carry it into plateau experiences, just continuing horizontally. But to the extent you shake and lose some orange, it does help you move to green. Now, you're not going to go from orange to turquoise or from orange to ultraviolet or anything. We just, there's no evidence for that. These structures unfold in stages, and they really, that's just it. But it will help you move from orange to green. If you're green, it'll help you move from green to teal, or from teal to turquoise, and so on. And so art can help with that. It can help do all three of these, temporary transcendence, relatively permanent plateau experience to an actually moving vertically in a transformation to your next higher structure. And all of a sudden that makes sense because now we can see that people all identify themselves as doing visionary art in a sense the only thing they have in common is punching into the subtle state, the subtle realm. But many people doing it are, some of them are at red and some of them are at green. A few of them are at orange, some of them are at turquoise. See what I mean? Yes. The artists themselves. Totally do. That's, yeah. that, it's very helpful, actually. Wow. I talk to a lot of people who use entheogens. Right. And on occasion, because I'm always looking for this, right. I'll talk to someone who entered into a state of the void. Right. right. And almost to a person, because of the general level of their preparation for it right. um, and their state of consciousness, it's a completely frightening experience. Right. Them. Right. There isn't real preparation for it. There's right. a kind of, now what? You know, now yeah. I'm gone. And because of its, the quality of the depth of it, I right. think that adds to the fear factor right. in it. And of course, 
the angels, you right. know, the biblical characters, they the first thing out of their mouths was fear not. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're only at a red stage of awareness, so right. uh, your interpretation of my uh, luminosity will exactly. most probably scare the crap out of you. But, right. yeah. <laughs> So that's really interesting. And that's why when the artist, perhaps the structure that they're kind of living in or currently inhabiting will become the shell that they bring the work into, say, the nature mystics. The highest experience that some of the artists had was in their walk in nature and right. the connection and their connection with that and so they'll bring that into the work and right. and then there are those others i mean it's interesting you could look at an artist like fry angelico or right. something and i don't know what he was like as a personality yeah. you know but the angels that he painted were you know, refined and subtle and gentle and gracious in a in a way that hadn't been mastered before. Right. And the kind of titanic transcendental moods that Michelangelo's work is alive with, I think was partially due not only to his masterful sort of techniques, but the depth of his soul. Right. I mean you just feel the depth of your own potential in the presence of these great, great works of art. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, you can sort of then, again, look at that because we, you know, also remember that there's a lower left quadrant and there's a whole cultural background that, of course, is going to have some influence on this and in terms of what is actually seen and done. Um, You know, in uh, Western painting, for example, it's very rare even with angelic beings, to see angelic beings with 10,000 arms. That's right. But it happens all the time in Tibet, and even in dream state, it happens all the time. And so that's probably not necessarily part of your, you know, trans-historical or, quote, eternal self or anything like that. That's, that's a cultural. But it's the type, it's the dimension, it's clearly of a subtle dimension, but it's influenced by the culture, the lower left, and then also people at different levels will indeed resonate, give it a certain kind of depth. And just the fact that a culture might have been at amber or blue or mythic membership doesn't mean that, I mean, some of its really great thinkers and seers and so on were indeed at green or at turquoise. Just as today, the you know center of gravity in this culture is what well, goes back and forth. It's somewhere between amber and green, depending on whether Democrats or Republicans are sort of in charge. Um, but, but there are a lot of people that are turquoise and indigo and, and higher. So you get great ones like you know Michelangelo, and just the sheer resonant depth of what they're seeing puts them, you know, at least in the vision logic in terms of their own vertical development, even though their culture was so densely at amber or at blue that they still had to speak through a lot of those symbols and use a lot of that. You can't jump out of your skin and you, you can't completely jump out of your culture. But yeah. so much different. So much different in terms of the depth they have. And so what I find fascinating is that even though it takes a little while sort of for people to click and get, oh, okay, I see the difference between these vertical levels and then their structures or she's or chakras and these horizontal states. But once you start seeing that and start to see how they interplay, it really does take you to a new level of analysis. 
because art really is operating now in both of these dimensions. And I was always sort of working on the fact that, you know, transcendental art was working on essentially one major dimension, which was something higher. Yeah. But now it's there's two kinds of higher. Right. And At every level. At every level. And, and I don't want to embarrass you, but it, I mean, it's so clear that just philosophically and in terms of your own self-sense, you're operating at turquoise or higher. And yet a lot of your compatriots in the entheogen argument and so on are not. I'll just put it that way. And so it, it's sort of strange bedfellows, you must yes. have felt on occasion, because you share, in a sense, half of the higher depth that they're working with in terms of higher, non-ordinary, visionary states. Yeah. But not necessarily the same structures, the same levels. And that's just important to keep these kinds of things in mind. Again, it's not to pigeonhole people because everybody starts at square one. We all end up, you know, just moving as far as we can, possibly from life to life. But it is just a way of saying if these structures are there and these states are there, then we have to take them into account because there's two kinds of transformation now. And the point is to undertake both, is to be able to have my center of gravity, my wakefulness at the highest possible level of consciousness that is available today, and then also be able to witness in all the major states, and witness waking, dream, deep sleep. That's what Turiya means, the, the fourth, the witness of all states. And so there's two dimensions of depth, and I find the you know, great arts punching into both. That's what's so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, these elements to bring into uh, works, I think, are extremely difficult for not only the artist to, for one thing, enter into these states of awareness, because it takes a, you know, you don't want to say a seeker after these things, because we know that seeking just leads to more seeking, but uh-huh. the, for folks to actually discover and find and reveal right. these the levels of awareness and to get to witness state and then to bring that into the artwork by your own definitions you're saying very few people are going to get it right you know and (laughs) because they're not operating on that but they will feel something they'll feel on a state level Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and see that's what's so fascinating you can take somebody with a sacred mirrors, for example, you can take somebody at red, you can take somebody at amber, you can take somebody at orange, take somebody at green, take somebody at turquoise, take somebody at indigo, run them down all 21 of those. And they're all going to have experience of these subtle states to some degree or other. And to some degree or other, they're the same subtle state. There's some similarity. It's just like when all five of those people go into the dream state at night, there are certain similarities among that dream state. Yes. But remember that the dream state, even in Vedanta, for example, you can experience the three middle she's in the subtle body in the dream state. And that means you can experience, and of course you can, virtually the entire, all spiral dynamics levels, for example, can, can be experienced in the dream state. So the fact that, you know, somebody's at red, at orange, and at green, and they're, they're all dreaming, means two things. They're all in the essentially similar dream state, and they're all interpreting it wildly differently. Yes, yes. Right. And well, so that, and I, and I yeah. guess the the, uh, the higher up that spiral you go, it still means you have access 
to those different and I suppose lower levels of of your own nature, right? Because they're all in there. Somewhere. That's right. That's right. And those are indeed. It's like if you are um, if your center of gravity is you know move from chakra one to chakra two to chakra three to chakra four to chakra five, let's say, and that's where you are. Then even though predominantly your center of gravity could still be oriented mostly to the gross waking state. And then, because that's just still, you could be at chakra five, um, which would be orange or green, and still just believe in the you know waking gross realities, and it's not uncommon. But you still eat, have chakra one, you still breathe and have chakra two, and you still have intentionality or chakra three, and so on. It's just you're no longer limited to the views from those earlier rungs. Right. Well, this also goes to where the um, big. Um, and we've alluded to it a few times, the entheogens, um, right. since they've been an important part of my uh, life and things. Right. And I've talked to a lot of people who've you know, had their own kind of visionary states and stuff. Right. It, it really does help to kind of lay out how those people, what kind of level of awareness they're at then. Some right. people are looking for fun and, and, right. a, par- and a party kind of right. uh, just kind of, ooh, that was weird. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then there are people who are looking for God, you yeah. know, and, yeah. they, and they sometimes they find it. Yeah. And so it's a, I guess, in terms of the drugs, it's more like, what are you looking for? Yeah. Uh, and what's ready to emerge for you? Uh, it did occur to me just in light of the injunctive uh, religion that Johns Hopkins uh, report, the Roland Griffith thing, which you probably came across, there was a study that went on for three or four years that they uh, gave psilocybin to people who were already kind of on the spiritual path in, in various different ways, but they were psychedelic virgins. And so they were given, I think, uh, a few sessions in a very supportive set and setting. Right. And it was found that about 60% or better of them had what they called some of the most important experiences of their life. Right. And they were, uh, in, to various degrees, uh, full on mystical experiences and things. Right. And so. This was a study that went on for years. It was done by one of the best psychopharmacologists in America and in the world, I guess, and published in Psychopharmacology magazine, one of the, right. you know, the premier journal for this kind of thing. What year was this? And what year? Uh, this just happened in '06. I think I sent you the link to it. Right. Is it still going on? Do you know, or do they? They're now. Continuing the exploration, this guy Roland Griffiths is he's yeah, the, like, the, yeah. So so they are continuing, and they're also dealing with the flack that publishing something like that brought up. Imagine it kind of you know yeah. went through the, went through the media and uh, stuff, and and you know some oh mushrooms can bring upon you know people who are looking for that kind of thing a mystical experience and right. most most hippies could have told you that but <laughs> this this is you know confirmation from the halls the hallowed halls of medical science right. and they're saying basically gee whiz folks this is an important area of study that we're hindered in 
studying because of the various legal entanglements of the of the entheogens. Yeah. And uh, isn't it time we re-examine it? I think well, that was that was part of the point of doing the study. But the other part was the continuity with the earlier, and I think the most interesting kind of studies that went on with the entheogens right. was the, the Good Friday experiment and the kind of experimental mysticism. Yeah, at Harvard. Uh, at Harvard, yeah. yeah. And, and so this confirmed Pankey's experiment and deepened it in a way. And basically, I thought immediately, because I'd been reading the integral spirituality of right. the injunctive religion, you know, take the mushroom and, and see what happens, exactly. you know, over 60% say this, you know. Exactly. And so it's a, I don't know, I just felt like there's a candidate for that kind of thing. But, you know, the conversation today is helping me to see how, you know, everybody that takes mushrooms isn't going to have, isn't right. going to necessarily interpret this right. as a, a religious opening for themselves, and they're not even looking for that. Right. And they may just see it as, wow, that was scary, or wow, that was weird, or right. something. They may not have the the rest of the sort of intellectual equipment to right. interpret it. Right. And what can happen for some people that are at a vertical developmental level or stage or structure or wave that might be amber or blue or mythic membership is they'll have some of these really profound experiences of subtle and even causal, and that will act to, you know, actually reinforce their mythic belief. They see it in a whole new different light, and they actually, some people, it reinvigorates a kind of, even ethnocentric faith, right? A and fundamentalism, just, exactly, and, yeah. and and a, and a much a much you know um, more you know freewheeling version, right? But you only at whatever you know you you work with whatever interpretive repertoire you have, hmm. and so if you're at a particular in a culture and a particular stage of your own unfolding, then you're definitely going to experience that in one in one way, and in other stages and other things that are going on, you're going to interpret it in a different way. In some cases, of course, you're going to, it's going to be experienced as just nothing but overwhelming and fearful. And in other cases, it's going to be very, very meaningful. And those people, we would postulate, were having not only this temporary peak experience that's sort of along the horizontal scale of states, but that there could have been an actual shift in their, in their horizontal center of gravity. They could have actually shifted from a predominantly gross-oriented self to a predominantly subtle-oriented self. It takes subtle realities as being as or more real than gross realities. And for some, even it's rarer, but for some, that kind of peak experience can lead to a shift horizontally from a subtle-oriented self to a causal-oriented self. And that's why same thing can happen with shamanic experiences. Mostly, those help people get from a gross orient itself to a subtle orient itself. The shamanic tradition, as you know, has fewer cases, uh, as Roger Walsh pointed out, of causal dimension experiences. Occasionally it does, but it's rarer. And so that all of a sudden, all of that makes sense. And for some people, though, it's going to also then act as this micro-transformative event that because they are, well, because that, frankly, it's drug experience at this point, because it could be an entheogen or it could just be an in meogen 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's just nothing but their own, you know, sort of narcissistic state, to the fun at a party kind of experience. Right. But it's right. going to help, to some extent, disidentify with whatever level you're at when you have the state experience. And again, people can have these state experiences. They can be at magenta or at red or at amber or at orange or green or teal or turquoise or indigo. And it allows us to make sense of that. Yeah. And well, yeah. I guess that for a, it's interesting because the uh, in the case of, say, the entheogen, then that's dropped into both a level of awareness that the person is already at yeah. and their kind of mental set about where they intend to go. Right. Now, what is their intention with this experience? And uh, so I guess for me it goes back to you're not going to probably make a work of transformative art or necessarily have a transformative experience unless somewhere inside of yourself you've already generated some intention toward that transformation. Right. And at some points it can catch people right at a very catalytic moment when they're sort of right on a exiting from either you know one level to the next higher level or from one state to the next sequential state in terms of their own deepening yes and it's rare when that happens but art that can happen with art and it can happen with various types of drug experiences and it can happen with meditation and the incidentally the names that i needed in the transformation of consciousness needed to just refer generally to the self that as it's oriented the name of the self in each of, let's say, the four major states of gross, subtle, causal, and non-dual. And the self that's oriented mostly to a gross realm and gross state, I call the ego. And the self that's oriented mostly to a subtle domain, I call the soul. And the self that's related mostly to a causal or formless domain, I call the self, capital S. And then in the non-dual domain, it's not so much a self, so I just call it suchness. So you have this horizontal sequence of cells that goes from basically ego to soul to self to suchness and then of course vertically there's a standard archaic magic mythic rational pluralistic integral transpersonal and now it becomes interesting because again you've just got this you know actual three-dimensional matrix in a sense with two different ways people can grow and they can grow horizontally or they can grow vertically and art has a role to play in both of those and that's what's so interesting to me and again, obviously, it's an immediate role. It's going to help people change states, even just a temporary change of state, or occasionally a more permanent plateau kind of change. And in some cases, it can be instrumental, and people are starting to do, a, you know, going through a vertical stage, vertical structure, vertical level growth. And art or meditation or occasionally drugs can be hit a catalytic moment and be a real instrumental in helping them vertically grow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, and you can also then get a lot of how they're going to experience that, and whether they, are they growing from amber to orange, are they growing from orange to green, are they growing from green to teal, teal to turquoise, and so on. And so that allows us actually to add a richness to their experience, and not just reduce it all to let's say you know visionary art or just shamanic art or so on, because there's red shamanism and amber shamanism and orange shamanism, <laughs> green shamanism. And that's, it's, uh, so I, again, don't see this as pigeonholing, but it's just enriching the interpretive repertoire that we have when we're looking at what happens in people as they go through these things. 
it would be interesting to kind of, I mean, one does it when they look at uh, the various kinds of art to kind of stick it in a, well, this does this, but it doesn't go there. Right. This does right. that, but it right. doesn't quite do that. And so, and you always wonder how subjective those analyses are. Yeah. But this model gives me a way to interpret why different works of art and, and different artists' kind of bodies of work may hover in right. certain domains more than yeah. others. And why it's also fascinating to see the evolution of an artist's body of work, the development of it over a, over their lifetime. Very um, much. Yeah. And, and the evidence for both of the scales is so... I, one of the things that, of course, you and I always run up against is just... Well, you know, the word ignorance comes to mind, but I actually don't mean in this case that judgmental. Ignorance is a pretty strong term. But it's just people aren't exposed to the evidence for both of these scales. So people aren't exposed to the evidence, for example, of the different types of states of consciousness, that there really is gross, subtle, causal, non-dual states of consciousness. And the evidence for this is just overwhelming, not the least of which is their own experience. Every 24 hours a day, they're plunged into these different states. And people usually don't lose a wonder that they can be in a dream state and it, it seems completely real to them. And when they wake up, they go, oh, well, that's not real. And, and what they're really realizing is that their own wakefulness is present in both gross and subtle realities, that their transcendental self is different from both of those. But that these are very real states otherwise and, and can be experienced that way. And then green, the actual green stage itself, is the only stage in the vertical sequence that denies stages. So it's just, it drives you crazy. So the postmodern is sort of specialized in that, in being a stage that denied stages exist. And that's why, you know, green basically just ended up fueling the red narcissistic boom in this country, which has just been a disaster, unfortunately. But the evidence for these, the vertical stages, again, is just overwhelming in, in terms of just the general fact that growth occurs. There's vertical growth, there's horizontal growth. And so if you just accept the overwhelming evidence for both of these, then you start saying how they fit together. And then it comes down to what does art, what can art do, and how does that fit? And that's what I think is so really fascinating. And it also ties back into your own work as well. And I wanted to talk a little bit also about entheogens to the extent, you know, in terms of just your own personal growth with these. Because you can see how these things could indeed, they can lead in different dimensions. There are certain aspects of them, as you discuss them with other people, that you can recognize similarities. And that there are other things that are, you know, different. And yeah. in, indeed, it just depends on the, the level they're at, among other things. But what your own, as you say, you, you take it back to the first major universal mind lattice LSD experience. And this was in that period, you know, right around the time that the Harvard experiment was being done and that these things were looked upon as an extraordinary tool of psychological investigation right. and not sort of pigeonholed as they are now with, you know, just merely some of the, the, the shadow downsides of them, which nobody denies. But the upsides of them are, are sort of universally scrubbed out of cultural awareness, which is why I find the Johns Hopkins thing so extraordinary that somebody had the guts and wherewithal to do that kind of research. Oh, yeah. Um, but anyway, what was the... 76. Eight, 76, you said, yeah. 
And so what were the circumstances of that? Well, let's see. My first LSD experience was about a year earlier when I met Allison, as I sort of briefly recounted in 75. And that was, you know, my art professor very daringly and gave me uh, some LSD, and that uh, led to a kind of a, an experience of going through a tunnel in my head toward the light. I was in the dark and moving toward the light, and it was a it was kind of a resolution of all these polarity experiments that I had been doing with you know the performance art and things, right. which was bent on we live in a world of duality, and that's you know that's all I saw, and that's what right. the world was. I was right. deeply enmeshed in that. So this kind of polar unity spiral really showed me that uh well the different shades of gray were uh holding together the opposite and that right, inspired right. me to change my name and stuff so and then finding Allison as she was the other person who had taken LSD that night right um we then uh stayed together and so we decided to periodically every every few months we would take LSD and lie in bed and wear blindfolds and perhaps listen to Bach organ right. music or right. something that was uh, uh, would perhaps catalyze the the depth of mind and things. And on one of these sojourns, that was when the universal mind lattice experience happened, and it was it was unlike any other um, previous psychedelic experience that I had had. It was uh, it didn't feel like a quote vision because it was a transformation of, of my understanding of who and what I was as a being. Right. It, was more, it was more or less like a, now I see who I really am right. and what I really am, just like when we wake up from the dream, like you were saying, right. and say, oh, that was just a dream. Now this was kind of as a luminous fountain of light, and interlocked with a omnidirectional, similar kind of cells of living energy, and the energy was love itself, it felt like, okay, this is the bedrock of reality. This is the my true nature. And, and it felt like, well, maybe I'm dead, or maybe <laughs> this is somehow beyond time, because it, it seemed like the little body right. was just a kind of uh, funny little meat puppet shadow right. that was uh, not any longer, it was just a kind of a shred of right. something, you know, left behind. And the, this uh, sort of full, infinite luminosity right. on just that extended right. without end, that was what was really going on. It was seeming like this is the body of God that is the cosmos, that, is, right. that kind of wears the mask of the cosmos. Right. And you had died. <laughs> In a way, yeah. 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 yeah, sure. Yeah. And yet probably all of 20 minutes later, I you know, took my blindfold off and was like, wide open looking at Allison. And she was like looking at me and, and, uh, said, oh, my God, it was in the most amazing place, and you were there, and everything, and everyone was there. <laughs> and she said, yeah, I know, and it looked like this. And she started drawing the exact same space. 
kind of spooky, isn't it? That was spooky. Yeah. And but that was the catalyst then that as an experience that led me to really looking at geez, if she had this experience and I had this experience right. then I bet other people had too. Right. And then it was full on investigation into the all interdenominational uh, mysticism yeah. and uh, and this is when I came across your work and Huxley's perennial philosophy and it really felt like the greatest potential of the entheogens was in in a proper set and setting yeah. the, capac- the capacity of them to perhaps in, in a few cases elicit these or reveal, allow oneself to reveal these dimensions of awareness that take you, uh, uh, you know, to the further antipodes of the mind, I guess. Yeah. Uh, And it changed my sense of identity completely. Yeah. Yeah. And, but as I was saying, I had a lot of performance art to do at that time. I had no way of exactly bringing it back. Right. It set off a a lot of study, right? And it took years. Yeah, it took years to study this and uh, and continue to make a living and and yeah. such. And uh, <laughs> so so uh, you know, trying to keep your feet on the ground and your and your head in the um, higher stages, yeah, uh, or structures, I. It was challenging. And then to try and put that into your artwork, that was when it did seem that I was going out on a limb. Yeah. And I did find, you know, at least in the early modernists, a lot of folks who were talking about um, making pictures of transcendental reality. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. And see, in terms of your own sort of Wilbur Combs lattice, which... It suddenly becomes a kind of a lattice, a map, if you will. And it's just a map. It's not the territory. I hardly even need to repeat that anymore, but it's always worth remembering. But it's a, a lattice, a map, an indexing system, not only of sort of types of experiences. It's actually a map of one's own personal growth because everybody starts at square one. So everybody starts if we have these structures going up vertically, up one side, and then horizontally we have these four or five major states. Everybody starts down. It's a sort of the lower left corner of the of the lattice. And then you vertically develop and you can horizontally develop. And the end point just for where we are at this stage in evolution is to get basically is to the upper right in terms of this particular grid. You want to get to be one with all major levels and all major states or all major structures and all major states of consciousness and you are you can just map one's you know your own growth and development on, on this thing it's really fascinating and you were right at a point where your self sense was still predominantly oriented towards the gross domain in terms of that's what was actually real and then probably an orange or something that's right uh, you were do, that's yeah. right and, and your your performance transgressive deconstructive stuff it, it sort of was was you'd moved into that was sort of your green phase and then mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and that's a very important state nobody skips green you know green is extremely important but that acid trip caught you right when you were ready to uh, again almost catalytically flip from gross into subtle in terms of the actual orientation of the self from ego to soul 
and then also from green into making that leap into integral, into vision logic, into centaur, into teal and turquoise. And as you say, that you know took some years of study and work and so on, but it actually that state experience that flipped you from ego to soul also gave you a, that kick from green into second tier and, and was part of the events that just happened to catch you at that right at that moment. And that's when your art you know, was no longer merely transgressive and merely deconstructive, even though you still had to work that through, but it started to become reconstructive and, and actually transformative and positive because it had content now and not merely let's tear down anything that I can see. So that's why that's such an interesting catalytic point for you. Completely. It's interesting because I didn't have the the background to interpret the experience. And, and now I see, just having this conversation, that it was really important to do those all that reading and everything to try and find a way to you know, understand right. what had happened because it seemed like a, a central relocation of the identity, you know. Absolutely. And so fortunately there is a good body of literature that points us in those directions and ever more subtly refining that and clarifying that. Right. And, and your work has been a real catalyst for my work. It's, I have to say, you give good vision in, <laughs> uh, in terms right. of uh, in terms of reading the work. I, Up from Eden, I think, was particularly helpful for me as we were about to engage in making frames for the sacred mirrors. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted them. Like, what would a 21st century kind of spirituality have? Right. It would have to bring in the threads of evolution. Right. We'll have to bring in the threads of science and the things that we know to be so about right. the cosmos that we're in. And so that was really important for, for me to try and create a developmental framework, a philosophical framework that would house the statement that was being made in visually. Yeah. So thank you again. Well, yes, yeah, thank again. you. So follow out that thread on your own entheogenic state development and obviously how it also fed into your structure stages, vertical growth. But what was some of the, one of the next highlights for you after that? Obviously you and Allison started off on a continuing joint growth and development, not only through entheogens, which we want to kind of focus on right now, but also study and meditation and so on. And I have to say that your collaboration, the two of you, is another really extraordinary leading-edge phenomena. First of all, it's rare that anybody from our generation, I sort of look at it, anybody born sort of from boomers on, the average lifespan of a relationship, if you make 10 years, that's sort of a, a full life. That's it. <laughs> and and so most people, you know, seven years is a real watershed, and three or four years is the average. So y'all really, you know, have been together in just an extraordinary collaborative way, and which is very inspirational, first of all, but it's also been extremely creative and sort of taking turns as each other's muse and in terms of a kind of a yab yum, 
if ever there was one, is the two of you. And I think uh, Zena is the perfect kind of living embodiment of that. Um, your daughter is, is just a beautiful, if you will, representative of a beautiful relationship. So that's really extraordinary that you all begin, you know, not only this artistic growth together, but this interior growth as well. And you're also refining your technique, and which is instantly quite extraordinary in terms of the stuff that you have contributed on the technique side of art. That's a whole other conversation at some point. But take us back up after the So after 76 and that major sort of catalytic breakthrough experience, what comes to your mind as some of the, as maybe the next, a next really significant moment in that history? Well, I think that I guess the take-home thing besides all the worlds of luminosity that I hadn't experienced before was seeing that the structure, at least in that, state and or simply was love that that there was a kind of universal infinite expanse of compassion or love that was the background reality of the foreground of the world and allison's our relationship really i think it was essential for my own healing to be able to access that and i i don't know whether it would have been possible otherwise you know but because our daily experiences you know we're ups and downs and various things like that but for the most part we're happy and together and and we reinforce and encourage each other and everything and so to find that on that very local level of love that there was an even grander, more kind of unbelievably vast network of love right. that that was an essential part of the cosmos. I think that came to inform the uh, the rest of of our lives and the rest of our visions and the sense of interconnectedness right. that that uh, we experienced at that time then became kind of a central subject for us. And so other experiences, it's interesting. I was looking back at, you know, it was mostly when Allison and I would trip together back in the 70s. And we'd lay in bed and wear our mindfolds and uh, our blindfolds and then write about it and uh, talk about it and stuff. Largely LSD still? Yes, yeah. Since we met on it, that was what we mostly did. We later became more explorative and stuff, but for the for the most part, the seventies, it was all LSD. Right. So there was a fellow named Walter Houston Clark who wrote a great book called Chemical Ecstasy, and he was a friend of Leary's and Pankey's and stuff, and he was a professor of. Uh, the psychology of religion at right. uh, Harvard Divinity School. And he, we found out, had continued these little gatherings, these psychedelic gatherings. He right. did not hand out the drugs or anything, but he tried to create a safe space for groups to do their journeys in. And so on one such occasion, we, I had met him, and, and uh, they were looking for a place to do this, and so I offered our loft in the in uh, downtown Boston. And so he had gathered together about 12 to 14 people. And uh, 
um, who all seemed, you know, fairly normal individuals and stuff. And we all said hello, and right. and uh, and it was understood that they were going to take a substance and they were going to spend the night there at our place. Right. And uh, we thought, well, these people are mature and can handle it. And, and, uh, <laughs> and Walter was kind of looking over the logistics of everything, so we decided to take a double dose, but <laughs> kind of incapacitate us, but certainly lead us somewhere. And um, so, of course, all hell broke loose, and it was just chaotic. And Allison and I were in a semi-comatose state at watching yeah. the uh, yeah. unraveling of <laughs> these people, you know. <laughs> I, I'm sure, you know, like some were, you know, businessmen and lawyers and doctors and some were, you know, housewives and, you know, just your normal run-of-the-mill folks. But they were, you know, intending for for something to happen because they took right. the substance deliberately. <laughs> and so some thought it was an orgy and some thought it was a, uh, uh, you know, uh, an opportunity to puke and, and uh, some some wanted to laugh for eight hours. And it was, anyway, it was kind of <laughs> nutsy. And uh, so it was during this time that I kind of exited, I guess, my physical uh, and was looking down on this melee and yeah. and had the vision of the um, deities and demons drinking from the milky pool. Yeah, it was the, the painting. Because uh, I saw that there were various kind of translucent beings that looked a lot like some of the archetypes hovering beyond the uh, human beings and kind of the human beings were all along a kind of milky pool of uh, kind of electrical life energy. Right. And, and the, these kind of archetypes were sucking the uh, life juice through the people and feasting on it, basically. Right. And it seemed like the arrangements of different people in different activities was as a feast of energy for these uh, deities, right. which later, talking to some Tibetans, they said, yeah, that kind of thing happens. You yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, let's see, I, I was also sitting up and wearing my blindfold and, and had an experience of uh, looking into kind of an electrical perspective grid that was just went on infinitely through right. space, and it felt like this was the loom that I uh, was weaving space-time with, and then the little mountains appeared and then disappeared back into this lattice. And, right. and that was an experience that stayed with me for a few years and then came out in the painting Theologue, and so, which is probably my most popular painting. It's a painting of someone seated in a meditative posture and uh, with a kind of perspective grid radiating out from the... Um, uh, third eye that was kind of like the vanishing point of the perspective yeah. grid. And, if I was uh, forced to pick just one, I'd, I would have to settle on that probably myself. Mm -hmm. My favorite. Mm -hmm. It's just an astonishing piece of work. Well, it's uh, once again, I have to credit Allison. I was going to put the figure over to the right-hand corner looking out at this kind of infinite field. Right. And and she said, oh, no, no, you have to put it in the center there. Right. You know? right. And that solved everything because right. then the horizon line 
and the vanishing point of the perspective grid became like the cone of perception. You know, it was ra- radiating out from. So you get a sense of the projection of right. the reality that right. you're embedded in, right. which is a very peculiar aspect of the mind. Right. And uh, so that was, a, I guess, an important um, right. experience for me. And then, I guess... <laughs> so what What year was that? Well, that would have been 78, the right. experience happened. But I didn't paint it until about eight years later. Yeah. Now, why is that? And do you think that, well, obviously, to some extent, also your technique had progressed in a way that you probably captured it better later. But what led you back to paint that after such a, almost a decade? I guess I just didn't know how to, Yeah. I didn't know how to describe it. Yeah. Because the experiencing of it was, I didn't see the theologue painting. I was the person who was seeing the perspectival grid, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that was weaving everything together. I, I somehow, I just couldn't get how you get from that experience to a description or a depiction of it. Right. Once again, it, it kind of blown my yeah. perspective on yeah. how to create a picture, you know? Yeah, exactly. Although the solving of it and the bringing it into form, it feels very conventional in a way. Yeah, but I think it's one of the reasons it's compelling is that you look at it and gives you both a sense of the, the conventionality of it. It's very reassuring. It's like, oh, yeah, that's just as real as mountains, for example, mm-hmm. that are, in a sense, reflected in it. But also it's like, wow, it's also so utterly transcendental that it takes you really far beyond conventionality, but without frightening you, so to speak, but mm-hmm. sort of exhilarating. And that, I think that's one of the things that's so astonishing about that. And it's, you know, let me just give a, a really brief commentary. And part of the difficulty, and we've talked about this before, is as an artist, there's all sorts of different kinds of art, of course, you know, from even in terms of whether it's representational or presentational or more expressive or even none of the above. But part of the difficulty is that even if you look at the quadrants and you look at, let's say, interior, upper left or eye space versus something like the upper right, which is an it space, is that one of the things, and this is what was so intensely explored by some of the modernists, although they're really kind of, the word modernist is a a mislabel for what they were really doing because they, they really weren't orange. They were you know, green to teal to turquoise, some of them. But part of what they were trying to do is represent these internal or interior realities that we don't commonly see, not in a joint space. And a lot of those realities don't have a kind of location. So one of the classic examples of a we space is mutual understanding. You and I mutually understand each other, but where is that? Where is it located? You can't put your finger on it. It doesn't have a color. It doesn't have a location. Most interior realities don't have a simple location that you can put your finger on it and say, there it is. I see it, or here it is, and now you look at it. And so a lot of what you've done is, in a sense, use the bodies, the gross, subtle, causal, or non-dual bodies, which are upper right phenomena, right. to 
anchor some of these interior realities too. Totally. And that's what's so because that and so you solve you know part of the difficulty of how to represent some of these higher interior realities is well let's look at the subtle energy that's acting as their body or support let's because I can paint that if I can see it and what entheogens do at their best is cleanse those particular doors of perception so that some of those realities can be seen and then a great artist can capture those. And the hardest way to capture them is in, quote, representational painting. It's easy to write about them. It's easy to talk about them. It's easy, easier to dance them in a certain way than it is to actually come up with a hall of sacred mirrors. Because once you leave gross reality, you're on your own <laughs> in terms of commonly shared signifiers. So anyway, that was just a little commentary on that and part of what, when you say that you didn't know how to represent something like that, it's because a lot of that stuff doesn't have a representation, does it? Not like that. There's various artists that I've felt have a transcendental element in them. I'm just thinking of the artist Lee Mulliken, and he has kind of perspective grids and things like that. Uh -huh. And I can only think that maybe he even had similar experiences and things, you know. But And this was the problem I always had with some of the modernists who were, yeah. you know, really, really intending to portray the transcendental realm right. and things by not locating it in the body or with any kind of reference point. Right. It made access to these states of awareness that they were representing right. uh, somehow, as you were saying, unanchored. Yeah. And, and we can't tell necessarily whether this is simply a, a pleasing arrangement of form exactly. and therefore a kind of formalism right. and whether a minimalism is a kind of nihilistic minimalism yeah. or whether it's a... Faker painting. Yeah. Yeah. In the case of Rothko or something, we yeah. can get a sense of the depth and transcendence of a, right. of a more minimal piece. So it's... It's challenging, and I think especially challenging is the non-dual. Yeah. How does one go about bringing in the witness as a state for people, or for how do you, right. as the Tibetans say, plant a seed of liberation in the mind stream of the viewer? Right. You know, by presenting a glimpse. Uh, but in the Zogchen training, they do talk about the importance of the view being established early on. Right, exactly. Well, it's part of, I mean, you look at somebody like Kandinsky, for example, and it's exactly what you're saying, because, I mean, I, I just love the guy, and once you knew what he was trying to do, it makes a certain sense, but if you just look at some of these things, you like, you really don't know what it is. Is it, What is it? Is it like finger painting? Is this, um, you just put paint looks like when you splash it on a canvas? Is it some proto-Jackson Pollock stuff, or does it actually have a representational intent? Well, he was trying in some of them to represent interior thought forms. But totally. you don't know that unless you read them. And then his, his writings are much more successful forms of art than his painting in that regard, because it's easier to describe and use a philosophy, in a sense, to say that there's an interior transcendental awareness and et cetera, et cetera, than it is to represent that with paint. You know what I mean? So that's part of the difficulty. And so you, by anchoring, in a sense, you know, whether early on you were just doing it intuitively, but as you came to understand it to some extent also more intentionally, but that, you know, according to the 
traditions like Vedanta and Vajrayana, there are these shes or structures of consciousness, and there are these states of consciousness, and both of them, we would say, are in the upper left. And both of them require support by a body. So in a sense, there are two types of mind. There are structures of mind and states of mind. And both of those require a body. So there's gross structures and states of mind, and they require a gross body. There are subtle structures and subtle states of mind. They require a subtle body. And there are causal, formless structures and states of mind, and those require a causal body. And so you, by, in a sense, picking on and picking out the bodies and anchoring the mind stream in those, we're able to give a, a more visual representation. So, Well, you know. it's the thing that I think really was the uh, difficulty with my work in terms of, of its entry into a mainstream art world because this, what I've come to call a kind of transfigurative art, right. we know it exists in other cultures and things, you know, we can look at the Tibetan art and say, look, they're painting the subtle. Uh, right. <laughs> and look at the halos around Jesus. And right. They're pointing to another kind of body. Right. And so, in a way, it's always been there in the sacred arts because they were meaning to posit it as these higher levels that we all have access to. No, that's right. my green interpretation of why they did it. Uh, but I think that that's really why sacred art is effective. And by bringing the transcendental light in relationship with the body, that was the kind of no-no that I was doing. And bringing in the Eastern models of, uh, say, the subtle energetic systems and things right. like that, that because... Of course, I was at Harvard Medical School for a little while and, yeah. and uh, studying the body because I wanted to make art about consciousness. Right. And uh, that did become an important element and I guess continues to be an important element for me. Uh, right. you know, to, Ray is an atom, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It well, keeps me grounded. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah which, is, which is a funny thing for somebody on acid to say. <laughs> Except that it's, it is grounded. That's the joke, is that there are concrete realities. They're just subtle or causal or non-dual objects, in a sense. And it is hard to represent. Representation is very difficult. And you mentioned some of the Zen artists, for example, and how to convey non-dual is, is the hardest. And that's what Zen art is often about. Tibetan art, you look at and you get the sense that they're often focusing on the subtle body and the subtle realm and the dream state and so you get a lot of very um exquisite halos in a sense and in buddhism of course there are three or four major bodies and those are their nirmanakaya sambhogakaya and dharmakaya these are it's actually called the three bodies of buddha but the bodies of all human beings basically and the nirmanakaya is the body that you have in the waking state and the Sambhogakaya is the body you have in a subtle state. And subtle isn't just dreaming. It can be meditative states with form and even the bardo realms and so on. And to a large extent, the, some of the drug realms, right. experiences. Right, right. And then Dharmakaya, which is the formless body, the body in the, that supports the uh, formless realms. And then there's sometimes that a fourth body, which is the Swabhavikakaya. 
and it's the non-dual. It's the integration of all those all three. of them. Uh-huh. Yes. Exactly. And yes. so it's really hard. The non-dual, the difference between the state of the witness, which is the classic Turiya, the fourth state, yes. which is aware of the other three states, so that, that which is witnessing waking dream and deep sleep, is the transcendental self, and which is pure, formless Turiya, the fourth. The witness always has a relationship to what it's witnessing, which is everything always appears in front in relation to the witness. And so there's a subtle dualism in that, which is recognized by the fact that the fifth state, Turiya Tita, is beyond the fourth. And what happens there is that in Turiya, the fourth state, is a state in itself that's devoid of qualities or characteristics. So it's pure emptiness. And then there are gross, subtle, and causal forms that arise on the face of this pure emptiness. But there's still a duality between the pure emptiness and the objects that appear. And the non-dual state, which is actually the condition of all states, is not something separate. That's where emptiness and form become not two. So then there's not even a witness standing back. You can be witnessing gross, subtle, and causal objects, and you still feel like you're on this side of your face witnessing the world arising. But in the non-dual state, you're not. There's no on this side and on that side. There's just everything that's arising. Right. And for Zen, that often meant that since they were, you know, in monasteries or basically often just out in nature, that what was arising was often nature. And so Zen artists would paint just a simple sprout of bamboo or just often the Zen landscape. And this is very dramatically different, though, than what we would call nature mysticism because that's just mnemonicaya. But in order to paint a landscape like a Zen artist paints, you have to be able to have gone through, you know, being awake in the waking state and have wakefulness penetrate into the dream state so you're lucid dreaming and then wakefulness penetrate into the causal state so that you're in a state of Turiya witnessing all three states and then there's a profound satori where that emptiness and form become not two. Then you paint a rock or a bamboo or whatever you see, but it's not nature painting the way we normally think of it because it transcends nature. It's just nature happens to be what's arising, so that's what they painted. And it was successful to the extent that the artist, himself or herself, was in a non-dual state when they painted the artwork. And to the extent they were, then it helps evoke the same big mind, non-dual, ever-present awareness in the viewer of the art. And so that was a very tricky one because that was just taking anything that arises and through the sheer resonance and clarity and beauty and usually just sheer simplicity, a few strokes often of bamboo, as you know, literally four strokes, brush strokes, and yet it would convey, you look at it and you go, boing, big mind. Perfect. You just have the experience. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yes. And art can do that. But we can be aware of some of these subtle distinctions, you know, can make a difference. But how to how to have it is what that's what's so very intriguing. And you've sort of spanned you've been working with how to convey interior states and structures of consciousness by which body to hook them to. Yes. And portray. Does that make sense? Is that Oh totally. totally. Absolutely. And there are occasions when even just an artist who is perhaps not training them, their mind toward the non-dual yeah. can enter into the slipstream of the creative flow. Absolutely. And they 
may not have words for it. Absolutely. But the manifestations then do feel like resonant with that yeah. kind of... Uh, yeah. Yeah, those flow states are actually, most of what people call flow states are an experience of the non-dual state in whatever other state or structure they're at. And <laughs> athletes get in, you know, non-dual flow states, mostly around, you know, in physical motion. Great singers get into it when they sing. They get non-dual flow state in the state of that. Great writers. I mean, the non-dual ever-present state is indeed quite available. It's just usually brief peak experiences, and often people are experiencing don't even know it. Yes. Yeah. Because there are gross or subtle or causal objects also arising, and those are denser and flashier and so on. So, however, yeah. however, after having had those moments as as brief as they might be, right. there is a, like I was saying before, a kind of a joyfulness yeah. about the perfection of those moments. Yeah. There's a there's a beauty to those in retrospect. There's a beauty to them. Yeah. that resonates with us and reminds us that there's something important there. Well, absolutely. And once you've sort of had it pointed out in that sort of self-conscious way, although you're not self-conscious, but once that is, whether it's a pointing out instruction or Gempo Roshi is really quite a master of it with a big mind process, yes. which just basically has people experience all their, you know, sub-personalities until they've kind of objectified everything. And then what's left is big mind. And so when he's done, he'll say, "Okay, now notice the non-seeking mind. Notice and so on." And you just and you just go, "Boing!" Nine out of ten people will, in fact, notice what has been present all along, yeah. and that they weren't noticing. And that's one of the great things that various types of art can do as well: is mm -hmm. plunk people in that recognition. It's kind of the easiest way to shift your awareness or to alter your consciousness is just look at a work of art or listen to a piece of music, something that will mm -hmm. lift you out of your current state. Yeah, yeah. And that was, as you remember, that, that was uh, one of the things that you said go back to, you know, pick the story up with Schopenhauer and Schelling is Schopenhauer, even though in some ways kind of a dilettante, in other ways, it was really quite on to some stuff and no accident that he was profoundly influenced by the Prajnaparamita Sutras and the Upanishads. Yeah. But the idea was even, you know, listening to music, why does it have such a power, in, quite apart from its content or anything like that? And the idea was you get in a flow state. In, in so many words, he said you get into a non-dual flow state, and there is this profound joy in that. Yes. And it's probably one of the major forms of transcendence in adolescence, is listening mm. to music. No matter how goofy it is otherwise, you're just, you know, tapping along and humming along and singing along, all of a sudden, boink, you're gone. Right. I guess uh, looking at the rock and roll concert as a kind of shamanic, mining it for its possible shamanic absolutely elements, yeah. there are certain bands that have tried to push that envelope and have, uh, because of the ecstatic state yeah. of the participants, and there's yeah. sometimes in these uh, larger venues there can be Hmm, you know, over 10,000 people focused on listening to, you know, particular songs that they all love. And yep. so there's a tremendous expansion of, uh, you know, mind and heart and, and things and a real bonding on a very, I think, deep level sometimes. 
<laughs> by no means all the time or anything, but the, the same thing happens in some of these uh, trans parties and things like that, and especially right. when they're fueled by ecstasy or some other entheogen. Right. There are people who are sharing these very deep uh, stages of awareness and a wash in a kind of love that right. I think becomes unforgettable for yeah. for uh, some people, and it points them towards something utopian, whereas on the outside world in their day-to-day humdrum little cubicle, right. it's in a complete contrast to right. that and has given them a sense of uh, expansion and possibility. And certainly that's one of the great things art can help us to yep. feel. Yep. So 1978 then, what, as you run forward in your own mind's eye, what might be another you know, one or two significant experiences uh, leading up to today on your own anthogenic stream? All right. Well, the, let's see. I'd say in uh, 93, Terrence McKenna gave me some DMT, some dimethyltryptamine. Yeah. And it was rare, hard to come by. Still is, really. But it's a, as you know, it's a naturally occurring neurotransmitter. Right. And when you smoke it, it practically instantaneously thrusts you into a peaking state of, you know, like LSD kind of trippy state. So within about 30 to 60 seconds, you're very, very far away from where you were 30 or 60 seconds ago in terms of your ability to access a multidimensional reality. And so... And it lasts, is it fairly brief, isn't it? Very brief. Like 20 uh, minutes or something? Less than that. It's like wow. five minutes. Oh, you know? wow. It's just like, uh, I mean, after 20 minutes, you can, you know, get up and yeah. eat a popsicle or something. But yeah. the uh, really the full-on nature of it may be between five and ten minutes. Right. But during that time, you can glimpse something beyond time, and yeah. that's really what it's good for, I guess. At that time... I had had a, a, a dream about you know, a couple of days previous to that, a dream where I was painting something called Transfiguration. Right. And there was a figure, and it was entering into a globe of light, and it right. was hovering above the earth. Right. Pretty simple composition. And then right upon smoking it, I was feeling that I was this figure, and I saw inside of a kind of a grid-like body, the body was, the lower part was flesh. And then it became increasingly translucent and then popped into a bright realm. And in this bright realm, the rest of the body was pulled into the light. So the hands and the head were all kind of merging into this uh, fountain of light. And... uh, I saw, you know, kind of chakra-like gems that were hovering in the midst of this fairly open grid work of, it was just grid work of light that was a kind of almost like a computer model of a body or something, you know, without substance inside. And uh, so it was kind of an experience of being inside of the painting that was really extraordinary. And I could see the colors that and the kind of kaleidoscopic, infinite little shards of spectral colors that were glistening through the kind of crystalline 
cut glass type uh, right. uh, hyper mind sphere that, that I was inside of. And coming back from that, it was very, very helpful and informative in terms of making the painting and really useful information. And I had another vision while I was in there as well that later became the collective vision painting. Right. And which also then later became a part of the planetarium show here in, right. in, uh, in New York. And uh, so that was a good one in 93. Then right. let's see. I think that... And how would, you, how would you rate the sort of DMT experience in general versus LSD in terms of the capacity to evoke depths of these uh, states? Uh, essentially similar or... Although obviously one's... Five minutes, one's five hours, but right, uh, right. Is one jump out is obviously more than I the think other? that. Well, I think that the they certainly have different qualities. Yeah, um, but I have to say that the speed that the DMT flash happens uh, within is to its detriment in terms of the transformative right. possibilities for me. Right. Now I don't I don't know for other people, but I right. think that because you're, it's just very temporary. You can yeah. say, "Oh my God, that was very strange," and then try and dismiss it. You know, right. I mean, obviously you're never going to forget it, but it's not the immersive experience of an eight-hour LSD experience. Right. And right. so for me, that I guess I I have to say LSD remains one of my favorites on that. Right. However, I was going to mentioned that about 10 years after, in the early uh, 2000s, I guess, I started going down to Brazil and take ayahuasca. Right. And so that essentially is DMT, but it's drawn out into a more five-hour kind of setting. Oh, wow. And, and there, the possibilities are really, it's almost like an optimal kind of psychedelic. Yeah. Because... There's no body load afterward, which is sometimes you possibly feel on the um, LSD and things. Right. Many times people feel energized yeah. after a night of uh, journeying with the uh, ayahuasca. Yeah. And um, it's a different quality, uh, I guess, because at least the substances that we were drinking, the tea that we were drinking was made from the natural elements. And it was uh, from the Banisteriopsis cappy vine and the Psychotrius viridis plant, you know, that has the DMT-containing uh, leaves and things. And so the shamanic brew was very... It unleashed another stage of visions for me, I think. And there is something to the quality of DMT, I have to say. It, it's There is... A, I guess like all psychedelics, it has this element of the sacred geometric and the jewel-like right. um, qualities of the, of the visionary realm. Right. But I don't know. There's something special yeah. about it. Yeah. I wish that some of the neurotheologists would really look at DMT. They, they've been skittish of looking into the entheogens. I've rarely heard anyone in that field kind of seriously look at these things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, and then from 93 to today, any any other, you know, standout point or well, kind of get us up to the present? Yeah, I think that the uh, 
ayahuasca helped me see the net of being in a very strong way. And that, I guess, that painting that I'm still working on found its way into the tool. Yeah. uh, Yeah. was part of their Grammy award-winning package uh, that just won a Grammy. And uh, so probably uh, millions of people have been introduced to this painting that really was inspired by an ayahuasca vision, I guess. Uh, That's the net of being. And uh, it's kind of the meshwork, infinite, omnidirectional meshwork of godheads. Right. Uh, that, <laughs> that, that thing. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I was seeing these are quad gods, these yeah. quad-eyed gods that yeah. I, at least in my mind, are looking through the four quadrants yeah. of being. It, it's given me at least a, a little system to to see those uh, right. beings. Yeah. yeah, they're very fundamental for sure. And if, you know, archetype has any meaning, it's supposed to be the, you know, primary form upon which all of the forms are hung. And it's common to say that the universe gets started when, you know, subject and object are differentiated. And that's fine, that's interior and exterior. But you also singular and plural because you can't have a single subject. They arise in communities, there's no such thing as a single first instance of anything we can find, which is sort of mind-boggling. The single rabbit, for example, because at the very least you have to have a boy and girl. And it's, it's really outrageous, but they sort of, these, the four quadrants show up together, and that's how you get any universe going. So there's certainly other things that you can, other lens that you can use, but the four quadrants are really, really fundamental. And they end up showing up in human affairs as art, morals, and science, and stuff like that, is, is not surprising at all, because those are you know, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Pretty standard stuff. But I maintain, of course, they go all the way down and all the way up in terms of manifest forms. Yes, um, yes. So I just wanted to say how useful and helpful the four quadrants are, just in, even in talking about making art. Yeah, um, because we look at the upper left and, right. and say, okay, right. there's the artist is going to be inspired from within. Right. Uh, then the upper right, they're making an object, bringing yeah. it out into the world, but they're in their little garret or something, and then right. they bring it into a system. And the uh, lower right, yeah. that all art is growing within a certain system, and yeah. if they successfully put it into the cultural stream. Uh, of systems that where art can be viewed, right. then it has a chance at the sort of lower left uh, interpretation and uh, informing the meme stream, I guess, of the culture. Yeah. And that, that may be a kind of misuse of the four quadrants or something, but it, in a way it kind of works because it seems like a grand round, you know, that exactly. it comes from the interior, manifests into the visible and then goes back into the culture on a wider scale that then influences the interior uh, domain of the artist. Right. And so I've I've found it helpful just in analyzing where my problems are. You know, what quadrant am I deficient in here? <laughs> <Yeah>. You know. <laughs> and so it's been such a, a help. And I always, when I introduce it to students and things that. that it's universally greeted with respect. I think for the same reason we were talking about, I think at this point they're so, they're universal ingredients of the human condition, and when you, in a sense, point them out, 
people just there's the same shock of recognition. They just, oh yeah, oh I get it now. And I already knew that somehow, but you know, this really helps to formulate it. And I think that's exactly what we're trying to do. And it's general yeah. orienting. Yeah, generalization. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Well, this is fantastic. We've been doing this for about three hours now, so we'll probably take a breather on this one. But it's so cool, and it's in a sense we're kind of back where we started, which is took one stream of your own history up to the present and the present circumstance, the cultural, is that it's right at an inflection point. And there's really, these are fairly rare. We, we act, actually were part of one in the 60s, which was a shift from the leading edge going from orange to green, and now an even more staggering shift in the leading edge going from green or pluralistic to second tier or integral or vision logic or centauric or teal and turquoise and so on. And it's just as exciting, in ways more exciting, than the, the other shift, the previous shift was. And so it's really kind of rare that any generation just by luck as much as anything happens to be right on the cusp of you know major transformations both at the beginning of its career and at the end of its career but we were you know fortunate enough to be in that position and now it's i don't know I, this is just as exciting as anything that's starting to happen and again it's not the mainstream we don't expect the mainstream to really get with this until frankly the next generation yeah. but so many of them are already getting it and totally which is just so cool and it's oh, so they, exciting exactly the young people who grasp your work largely outnumber the old i think i think they do i think they do because yeah. it feels like the natural context within which to view what's going on a lot of times our peers or something have rigidified their kind of view Right. And uh, it takes a kind of, I don't know, willingness to die to your what you've been identified with in order to open up. I think you continually challenge people, Ken, with the next, you know, people kind of uh, tremble. Oh, no, he's, he's, he's come up with a whole new thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was just getting used to being something like this. You know, and uh, that's why I found integral spirituality, it's continually challenging and revelatory and so helpful for us. And, and I, I love you so much, Ken, and thank you for the, the treasure of these uh, this time together. Well, thank you, my friend. I mean, it's, you're one of the, just, it's one of the dearest friendships that we've had over these years, and it's just so extraordinary to, you know, see these events continuing to unfold. And it's great that we have been able to, you know, share this journey in different... We're both sort of artists working with, in just different media. And totally. that's what's been so great, so complimentary in so many ways. And, you know, come at it from different backgrounds and different experiences. And it's no secret that I've not had a lot of experience on entheogen, so I can hardly be said to to simply be, you know, in on a drug experience, so to speak. Yeah. But clearly the people that are, it's an extraordinary tool when used correctly. And yes. the fact that we, you know, end up seeing that there are essentially similar realities that can be seen if the doors of perceptions are cleansed and developed, 
that's just more reassuring to me. It's it, it's yeah. not you know it just gives even more credence to some of the essential truths that we're trying to communicate in our various Absolutely. ways. Absolutely, yeah, it's been so great, and that it also goes back to say the Vedantic model, and you see the beauty, the elegance, and the usefulness of that model as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, give my best to the uh, women in your life. Will do. And we will continue this conversation soon. It's, it's always a delight, my friend. I love you too dearly. Thank you. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Hey, thanks for listening. We at Integral Life have been producing cutting-edge discussions and practices for over 15 years now, and most of the conversations are even more relevant today than when they were originally published, which is why we call them evergreen conversations. They never fade, they never spoil, and they only become more valuable the longer we sit with them, which is why we're making many of these classic discussions available to you. Each week, we're featuring one of these conversations here in our Everyone is Right podcast. So be sure to subscribe to this feed with your favorite podcast app. We'll also continue to post excerpts and sometimes full episodes from our ongoing conversations at IntegralLife.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, we invite you to become a supporting member in order to access our premium audio and video podcast, as well as to help support the emergence of integral voices in the world. You can get your first month for only $1, which will give you access to our full library of perspectives, practices, and presentations, all designed to help you thrive in today's ever-changing and quickly evolving world.